0: A Canadian is individual a Canadian in question, is a Canadian. As soon as you make citizenship for some Canadians conditional on good behavior, you devalue citizenship for everyone. I have greater faith in Canadians and in our institutions uh, than um, the fact that we might sort of shrug as our fundamental rights are casually brushed aside uh in the name of political expediency or a um uh, a a national emergency that actually wouldn't be one our veterans step serve canada with honor and valor right across this country right across, and all around the world right across this country they stepped up for us and now it's time for us to do the same for them reducing the contacts reducing the gatherings are going to be most important I don't say this to scare you. I say this because we need to be honest with ourselves about what we're facing. A Canadian is a Canadian and yeah. you devalue We need to hang in there together. I did not for a little together. while longer. I'll explain a number more months. In a My
1: job throughout
0: oh, this. That's pandemic a
1: rifle. That's a rifle, but
0: to there. keep Canadians safe. There's uncertainty and anxiety, but pulling together and following public health guidelines will get us all through this. I am absolutely, absolutely serene and confident um, that I made the right
1: choice in agreeing with the invocation. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Uh, all right, people. So that is a clip from a channel called the Indie News Network. Uh, not mine, but I got a, a, a text message from a trusted friend who said, Viva. First of all, you might like this video and you might like this channel. And I watched it and I said, I'll do one better than that. I'm going to start tonight's show with that clip and a link to the channel in the news network. I don't know the individual behind the channel personally. I just know that the person who vouched for that person is someone who I unequivocally trust. And I said, it would be my pleasure and my honor to put that channel on blast for anybody who's looking for Canadian content. And by the looks of it, uh, I think uh, I am uh, ideologically and politically uh, aligned with the few videos that I was able to watch on that channel. Um, I was on Jimmy Dore Friday. What day is it today? It's Sunday. On Friday afternoon. And we had a glorious time. Um, I think the British expression would be taking the piss out of somebody. But taking the piss out of somebody is almost like mean-spirited unfair jokes jimmy Dore has finally taken an not say finally jimmy door has taken an interest and has given me a platform to inform his audience of the insanity that is going on in canada that if it doesn't remain in check and on everybody's you know the forefront of everybody's consciousness will not remain in canada the the i, I could rant about it like all day every day but all of you know this already Everyone here watching knows of the tyrannical abuse of Justin Trudeau over the last three years, in particular, but really over the last eight years in general. The corruption, the scandals, the lack of ethics. Everybody here, all of you, know this. And Jimmy covered it on Friday, invited me on, and boy, howdy, did we have fun with this! And a lot of people in the chat, and even you know out there. Uh, zoom out a little, Viva. Damn it, like this. Uh, I'll I'll talk about the lighting in a second. I'm, I'm working things out here. A lot of people saying, you know, it's it's funny, Jimmy and Viva are so ideologically um, different. You know, Jimmy's a liberal, a, a, you know, far left. Although I think even the far left now is calling Jimmy a far right. Like I said on Jimmy's channel, there's no left and right anymore. I genuinely don't believe it. it's blue-pilled and red-pilled. The blue-pilled being the idiots who still think the government is good and the red-pilled being the um, informed, who know that governments have never been good they never will be good because there's a reason why governments attract psychopaths and this is a demonstrable statistic i think like the top 5 professions in which there is a statistical overrepresentation of psychopathy the professions which are the most likely <laughs> Just for everybody who doesn't understand what just happened, the professions, and for everyone listening on podcasts, I just pulled up a chat that said the autofocus is tracking your hands. You see, what I've been doing is wearing a shirt with words on it, so that the audio focus, the autofocus, tracks the shirt. The professions that track that attract the most psychopaths. It's not an accident, by the way. Law, medicine, and um, politics. And then there's a couple of other ones, which are like variants of those three. Um, and there's also a good damn reason why so many lawyers become politicians. And yes, I have worked for over a decade in the practice of law, the level of what you would call narcissistic psychopathy. Look, I won't say it's not the majority. It's not even like a significant minority, but it's just statistical overrepresentation psychopaths and government uh, are psychopaths and Jimmy Dore and I I think we see eye to eye on a lot of stuff even even the ones that are like the litmus tests like universal healthcare we both agree if the government would spend a fraction of what they spend to fund international conflict military ventures uh, uh, change of uh, regimes in foreign countries if they spent that on healthcare it, you know, we would have a solution you would have the, you would have the private public solution you know public healthcare for those who can't afford private. But, you know, instead of sending in the US what do you add 100 billion dollars to fund a proxy war in Ukraine, hey, what are they what are they spending on the military trillions? Instead of spending trillions on the military, just spend uh, a trillion less and put that into healthcare for those who can't get, uh, you know, afford healthcare. Do that in Canada. We agree on a, on a great many things. Jimmy, not a liberal. Well, Jimmy, I think, is realizing what happens now. Once you go red pill, you then become far right. There's no question about it. So, um, okay, that's the intro. We're going to talk about something else very quickly before we do this. Let's do the standard disclaimers, a little bit of housekeeping. No medical advice, no legal advice, no election fortification advice. But we will be talking Pfizer. We will be talking Carrie Lake, I think. We will be talking um, Michael Flynn suing the government for malicious prosecution. We're live now on YouTube, on Rumble, and on Locals, because what happens now and what I've been doing during the week, yeah, look at this, I'm, I'm going to get to all of the chat in Locals at the end of the stream exclusively. What I do is, because of my exclusive agreement with Rumble, um, and I'm happy, I'm, I'm proud to do it, End on YouTube, carry on on Rumble, and on Locals. And at some point, I think we might end on Rumble as well and then have a little exclusive portion of the after show on, uh, live on, on Locals, because we it ha- now has RMTP or RTPM, whatever it is, PRMPT, it's got that capability. So it's, it's fantastic, the functions. We're live on all three. If you want to support the channel through these things called Super Chats or Rumble Rants, know that YouTube takes 30% of all of that. Kevin Rutherford with a $4.99 Rumble, uh, Super Chat says, who built the cages, David? Who built the cages? I can tell you who did, Obama. Uh, YouTube takes 30%. If you don't like that, uh, Rumble Rants, where I can now go here because of an app and plug and see there are no Rumble Rants to read just yet. Uh, Rumble takes 20%. So better so better for the creator, better to support a platform that actually supports free speech. If you want to support both Robert and I and what we do, vivabarneslaw.locals.com. Uh, you could just become a member. No, no obligation to pay. Uh, well, no expectation. You're part of a community. You get tons of free stuff that's available to everybody. Uh, and if you want to be a supporter, you get access to lots of exclusive stuff. Seven bucks a month, 70 bucks a year, or more if you want to. You're one of those people who likes to spend more than the base requirement. And there's a lot of them. It's, it's actually very, very encouraging. Now, Kevin Rutherford. It is because psychopaths don't stand out as much in normal population of oddballs. Can you think of many normal politicians? Hello, my, my I see my I see my child through the window. I'm live. Um No, I I can think of uh, a few normal politicians and they typically uh, don't don't succeed the way the psychopaths and the mentally unhinged ones do. Winston Shittenhouse, I dress right, but I am not far right. Hold on.
2: Oh yeah, bring it, boy. Get over here.
1: Winston Shittenhouse in the house. You smell terrible. We need to have the groomer come. I've embarrassed him in front of everybody. Hmm. This is Winston. Winston, meet Winston, Winston, Winston. He just burped. Did you guys hear that? He just burped on national interwebs. Okay, down you go. All right, one more thing. Uh, just uh, so housekeeping, I think we've done it. Link to Rumble's in there. I'll get the lighting people. I think the lighting's actually pretty good now. The autofocus, I think I'm actually going to upgrade and go to like streaming with one of them DSLRs or, or mirrorless cameras, uh, but we'll see. Neon light I'm trying to get I'm trying to work it in this is artwork creations by creationsbyziggy.com wait wrong way this it's it's just freaking beautiful and uh merch you can always get merch vivafry.com for your merch dreams now okay so I get a um I became aware of uh, of this where is it here we go this is it not now all right James O'Keefe so I I I I come across get a link someone sends me a link to a fundraiser and I'm immediately about to give to it and I'm like wait a minute if this is set up by project veritas me no so eager to actually give to this fundraiser so I double checked it's a bonafide james o'keefe set it up fundraiser give send go because nobody uses go f me anymore because go f me should you know go bankrupt give send go for the pfizer whistleblower um I'm going to see if I can find the video of James at CPAC. Here it is. This is it right here. The company I founded. Let's watch this. This is. We're going to watch this as part of the intro. I gave a five hundred dollar donation, not anonymously, because I genuinely believe none of these things remain anonymous anyhow. So if anyone thinks they're going to dox me for having supported, uh, you know, donated to the federally incorporated not-for-profit Freedom Convoy uh, Project Veritas, which I will not be donating to anymore. Because of what they did to James O'Keefe. I donated to this. Uh, courage is contagious. And sometimes it needs financial support because <sighs> for reasons we all know, but check this out. This is this is the this is by what James says, the woman behind the the woman behind the whistleblower behind the Pfizer story. But I've learned a lot of things over the last month.
3: Having been ousted from the company I founded 13 years ago, mere days good. after the story. And as this was happening, I was talking to one of these people. And she was a little reluctant to go public, rightfully so. She was scared, it didn't didn't feel right. But after what I went through, we reconnected. The individual who helped identify this man, who helped bring this to light, who was targeted, who was brought into a room, interrogated, who had a red van go to her home, harass her, and her loved ones who was scared for her life was so inspired by the series of events that have occurred over the last three weeks that she's decided to go public with me on the stage right now debbie from pfizer would you please come out here
4: i was worried that i would end up in a body bag or in a car accident but um i realized that the spirit of fear is not from the Lord. As a believer, I knew that I couldn't just sit there. I couldn't just sit there and watch people get lied to. People get gaslit. It made me angry. I think we all need to learn to not be fearful.
1: Powerful. I mean, it's it's powerful stuff. Setting aside the, the dramatic music in the background, um, it's it's amazing stuff. So there's a give send go campaign for her. Uh, did I share the link? Uh, it's it's a it's the pinned it's the pinned comment on my Twitter feed for anybody who's who's not there. What's with the background music? There's an old saying in editing: if you notice the music, it's too loud. Um, but it's, substance. Overform every day of the week, never let the good, the perfect get in the way of the good um, yeah so if, if anybody if you, look, if you have something that you're able to contribute there the link is there and if you're not able to contribute um, uh, share the link I mean that's that's here fine, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go get the tweet right now um, oh yes my but give, give, and give me the plug please thank you very much okay. All right, here it is. Hold on, I'm going to share this right now. Barnes is uh, LA, LA, uh, LA time. So here, let me do this. Give, send, go. Pfizer. Boom, there it is. Uh, while we have the time, people, very rarely do I have like uh, what I consider to be a, not not an original thought. I have plenty of original thoughts, but where I think maybe I've noticed something that people haven't noticed. Now I'm going to go back to the clip on Jimmy Dore just so that I'm going to whet everybody's appetite to go watch the entire thing. Yeah, you all remember that clip a while ago with Klaus Schwab. Uh, I, the, I don't know where exactly he was talking. I could find it out, but it's, the, the original clip was posted like nine months, ten months ago, maybe a year ago. That he's talking about having penetrated the cabinet. I've I played it a dozen times on this channel, and when Jimmy played it um, last Friday to you know highlight the fact that the government has penetrated the cabinet of Canada, more than half of the cabinet. I I heard something for the first time in it, which I think if someone else noticed this, you let me know. But here's the clip.
4: Here's another one. You go, is it true that Klaus Schwab and the WEF have penetrated over half of the Canadian cabinet? (laughs) Hashtag true WEF puppet. Hashtag Trudeau sold out Canada. Those are good hashtags.
1: (laughs) No, they're not. Another another
4: ratio, 9,500. So just so you know. Klaus Schwab's, he is a puppet of the WEF. He was their young global leaders. To this. And do you want to see how I know this? He because here's Klaus Schwab. <laughs> and I have wait. to say, um, when I mention our names, this like Mrs. Mrs. Audio, Merkel, uh, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, Putin. they all have been young global leaders of the world. What? <laughs> cool. Oh, just but, wait for it. Um,
1: what we are very proud of now is young generation. Like, by the way, there this evil organization wants to take over the world. I have better audio in my living room studio than they do. You'll get, you'll hear it.
4: Like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of uh, of uh, Argentina, and so on. President, President, penetrated, penetrated so you're being so again this is the world order this it seems like Tell the wf and this yourself. kind of cabal of capitalists seem to be running every government uh, Do you know
1: what's interesting jimmy you played it this time and now i didn't pick up on it the first time but i, I knew nothing of brazil he he almost slipped up and said brazil and i don't know when this was uh, but it was definitely before lula so you know he, he might have been he might have been ahead of his prediction by not yet by claiming hold of, of brazil with the you know the election of lula but i know that Brazil or Argentina. let listen, just into, let's do listen to one more time.
4: President of, Braz- <laughs> of uh, Argentina.
1: And then, uh, you know, just small coincidences. Uh, the president of Brazil on the WEF website uh, implementing compelled vaccination in Brazil if people want to keep their um, government government uh, benefits. All right, Barnes is in the background. Let me see. Let me see. I want, I want to hear what Barnes says. Like, maybe, maybe I picked up on something. Lulu was... Uh, Lula was, Lulu was before Lula. (laughs) Vladimir Putin. I'd say he he makes it sound so delicious, like gravy and cheese. All right. Uh, We'll see what Robert says. Robert, bringing you in here. Boom shakalaka, sir. How goes the battle? Good, good. So we're going to see each other in, uh, what, less than a week?
2: Yeah, yeah. We won't have a show uh, next week because, Sorry. Uh, we will be live in Las Vegas for the first uh, Law.locals.com uh, meetup of uh, folks. Uh, so uh, that'll, be, that'll be fun with special guests, Mark uh, Grobert and Eric Hunley. We'll, we will record part of the show uh, where we'll be talking about some of the sins of Sin City, some of the hush-hush stories from Las Vegas, including the Vegas shooter, and what some of the theories may be about that. Uh, which will make exclusive to uh, members and as a content plus production for others that can be available for basically ten bucks, something like that. And uh, uh, after after the show, uh, but uh, yeah, so that yeah, we'll be uh, in, live in Vegas for uh, members that have tickets
1: uh, next Sunday. Robert, uh, you heard the clip uh, that was Klaus Schwab saying how he penetrated the cabinet of Brazil, Argentina. Uh, this was before lula i guess it was after and before lula because lula was president before bolsonaro beat him and then again afterwards so i guess he you know
2: uh, was a- bolsonaro did beat him he uh was
1: uh he didn't run in that election okay so bolsonaro arguably was or was not in the wef uh, you know it's the young glopolitas but lula lula clearly wasn't he look am i hearing things or uh you know going one step too far that he mentioned Brazil before Lula got reelected. And now that Lula got reelected, maybe now Brazil is part of the young global leaders. we
2: will see. I mean, I think uh, uh, in terms of Lula, Lula's always just wanted to be uh, a major player on the, on the stage. So the uh, it's, uh, you know, so far he's in, uh, reversed positions of Brazil uh, at least partially on the Ukrainian conflict came out with his, Vaccine mandates to get social benefits for chil- for families with children, things like that, that are different than some of what uh, some of his supporters thought was going to happen. So we'll see uh, how he actually governs. First time around, he governed as sort of a left of center, uh, slightly populist, but not as populist as he campaigned on. And, uh, you know, so far, he's been much more of an establishment politician since his election. There was, you know, the Biden administration interfered in the in the case to try to produce him. The Brazilian court system, inter, uh, you know, released him from prison so that he could run, and then refused to hear any meaningful election challenge. And now they're apparently trying to round up Bolsonaro supporters and purge them out of the military using their own January 6th type event. Mm-hmm. So the a lot of the critics of what was taking place uh, in Brazil, I mean, Bolsonaro comes from the right populist side of the equation in Brazil. Um, was a critic of the Ukrainian con- well, You know, didn't get Brazil engaged in that conflict whatsoever, and was a Trump ally. I think is currently in South Florida,
1: uh, planning his comeback in Brazil down the road too. And for anybody who missed uh, my interview with Paulo Figueiredo, uh, who is the grandson of a Brazilian president in '79 to '84, call him Bolsonaro supporter. I don't think he's he's shy about it. So you might want to, you know. If you want to write him off as partisan, you'll have your basis, but a a fantastically interesting, insightful um, interview where he, he, you know, he goes into the Lula corruption, Operation Car Wash, the the insidious corruption that even Bolsonaro might have taken a little too far, and now there's a pushback to that. So it was was a very, very interesting discussion uh, on Rumble, on Locals. And, and
2: Paulo, what uh, what's his last name
1: again? Paulo Figueredo, which means Figueredo. okay.
2: I was going. I, I wasn't going to try to pronounce it. I, he's interviewed me before, and I've talked to him before, so the, uh, I know him. But yeah. pronunciation is not my strong point.
1: Figueredo, and it means fig orchard or from the fig plantation. So I have to. Mm. That's a little. All right, Robert. Um, what do you want? Well, let's just mention what's on the menu for tonight before we jump.
4: Yeah, right
2: into and for those that are, some people would ask for like an order of 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 discussion, so they can know. You know. Uh, where things are going. So uh, we provided that on our locals board uh, here. I mean, the first case we'll discuss is uh, general Flynn files suit uh, for his wrongful prosecution. Uh, then we have everything at SCOTUS, which includes uh, foreign bank account reporting requirements and fines. What happens to abandoned property and disputes between States, the Biden student loan issue uh, and what may happen to a big elections case based on changes in the North Carolina Supreme court. Up third will be Carrie Lake takes her case to the Arizona Supreme Court. Uh, Dominion versus Fox. Uh, Then we have the big update uh, that uh, is the big case for today, which will be the Brooke Jackson case. Uh, uh, Made the oral arguments this past week in federal court. Uh, Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer on behalf of the American people for the for the fraud that Pfizer committed. Then we have a a brief update on the World Health Organization treaty that some people are still getting confused on. Uh, Some people asked about the UN agenda. The, 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 you know, sometimes called the 2130 agenda, 2150 agenda, 21 agenda, depending on which label you use and whether that's legally binding a uh, hey, 15 minute cities. And what's that all about? Uh, then we'll discuss the Murdoch verdict. Uh, not too long about it, but, you know, just a brief uh, snapshot. Juicy Smollet, uh is claiming double jeopardy as a reason so that he can never serve his very short sentence. The George Allen Kelly case—that's the border rancher uh, being charged with now second-degree homicide and aggravated assault in Arizona—in uh, the a very controversial case because it, a lot of it looks like self-defense. The uh, a kidnapped victim who sued uh, the family is suing OnStar. The uh, Department of Justice wants to deny Trump immunity for when he was president related to January sixth. Also those related to January sixth, the major
1: those insightful words sorry I, I, I shouldn't interrupt the, uh, the the list sorry Robert no problem
2: January sixth uh defamation case that's perce- that is going to proceed against the daily dot a uh, case I'll be filing this week uh, on behalf of megan fox the uh, uh, against the Wawatosa School Board for its denial of free speech rights, a the Florida blogger registration legislation that is being proposed uh, a major case about a major u s bank that went woke and how they're trying to destroy people and what it might mean for the future for the rest of us. Uh, the historic case of the week is about the uh, interestingly named lawyer named Khan uh, from Kentucky, on which there's been a multiple uh, documentaries about. The Tennessee trans law uh, that went into force. The Oxford school shooting, one of the state court cases, uh, dismissal on immunity grounds, shock, shock. Uh, and the lat sort of rapid fire will have the California surfer fight, which is kind of a fun little case, uh, <laughs> uh unless you're on the you know other side of that. And then, uh, Jordan Peterson has raised the issue about deep fake being a uh, deep fakes being libelous and Michael Knowles appears to have been libeled by the Rolling Stone.
1: And then we might, we'll see if we can work it tonight, Robert, maybe we end on rumble and have like a 15, 20 minute after party on locals where we get to some of the, um, tips questions and chat on locals where we are simultaneously streaming okay so let's starting with michael flynn and it, so someone just said hold on let me see if i can bring this up here this is and to think dave viva you started by making here we go nice numbers and to think you used to make vids in your car first i miss those days but i don't think i can go back to them but the michael flynn saga was one of the like the original sagas that i followed for you know not from beginning to end because i only got into it in the middle but it was one of the sagas from my car. We had Justice Smollett, we had Amy Cooper, Michael Flynn. The thirty thousand foot overview for anybody who doesn't know, he was prosecuted for lying to the FBI in the context of Operation Crossfire Hurricane, where they took him into a room and asked him questions about some of his communications with uh, I don't know someone from Ukraine. I forget who it was. Um, and he basically said to the FBI, look, what do you ask me this for? You have the transcript of the calls. All of his answers to the questions were equivocal in that I'm not sure. I can't quite recall. Yada, yada, yada. FBI goes after him for having made false statements to the FBI. Um, he pleads guilty. And I forget the name of the first judge, but he, he pleads guilty to a first judge who ultimately it was recused. the same judge. No, no, no. It was before, it was before Emery.
2: Well, the, the, there was a judge assigned to the case before the judge that presided it, but he pled uh, before the judge that became the controversial judge.
1: I thought there was an issue about his first plea deal being arguably invalid because it was, it was made in front of a judge who was conflicted. It was and therefore... that that
2: judge was ever assigned the case in the first place. Okay. He ultimately, but my recollection is he
1: disqualified himself before the plea. Okay. And it, it won't change much in any event, but then he gets in front of Judge Emery. It was Emery, right? Or Emmett's. Emory. Emmett, uh, Emmett Sullivan, right? Emmett Sullivan. Uh, anyways, and we, we went through all of that to say that judge was bias is an understatement of the millennia. Um, ultimately he then moves to rescind his, um, his guilty plea. Oh Jesus. So much that happened today. Anyway, he gets pardoned. He gets pardoned. Now he's suing the government for $50 million for malicious prosecution because they knew that it was malicious prosecution. And even if he pled to, making false statements that had, it, it was in the context of a, an investigation that should not have happened in the first place. Um, I mean, out of the 50 million bucks, he lost tens of millions of dollars in potential business, was, you know, basically had to sell, he in fact had to sell his home to assume his legal legal costs, ruined his life, which, you know, some people suspect was the goal of it all along, uh, allowed the, everyone to discredit him, whether or not it pushed him a little bit too far on the QAnon side of, of, of the election stuff. Who knows? Irrelevant. Suing for 50 million dollars. Robert, did I miss anything? And am I being too cynical now for thinking he's got a snowball's chance in hell of uh, succeeding on this claim? So
2: the I mean, the key component is he's bringing a malicious prosecution and abusive process claim, which is allowed under the Federal Tort Claims Act against the United States government for uh, for law enforcement officers only. And so if they have the power to either search, seize, or arrest, then they can be held liable for particular uh, individual intentional torts. Uh, This all arrived originally, you know, back in the time of the Constitution, you could sue a federal government official and they could raise lawful authority as their defense. Then the U.S. Supreme Court started coming in and granting sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity is a doctrine that is completely foreign to the Constitution, doesn't exist in the Constitution, is completely contrary to the Constitution. The very idea of sovereign immunity is, derives from that the king is the agent of God and as such can do no wrong. So that you couldn't sue the king because that would be like suing God. And by definition, you, he could not have done wrong. By definition, the American Constitution rejects and repudiates that principle of divine rule. And yet courts just decided to invent out of whole cloth, many conservative justices proudly preach sovereign immunity to this day, showing that we don't really have any judge in America that's a true constitutionalist in my view, because uh, sovereign immunity is no business in our constitutional fabric. But once they started doing that in the early 20th century, It caused enough public uproar that Congress went in and changed the law to allow the U.S. government to be sued in certain instances. And those instances include certain claims that can arise under the Federal Tort Claims Act. That includes the right to sue a law enforcement official for abusive process or malicious prosecution. Uh, You have to administratively exhaust your remedies first, and then you can file suit. The malicious prosecution law depends on the jurisdiction where the prosecution was brought, typically. Now, Michael Flynn has brought this suit in the state of Florida in federal court because that's where he now resides. But most likely the substantive law under the choice of law principles will be the law of the District of Columbia governing malicious prosecution.
1: Does um, I mean, do we presume that there's going to be a motion for change of venue or or if it's going to be the applicable laws of, of another state? Would they not move it to that state?
2: Generally, no. Uh, you know, generally, plaintiffs have a right to sue where they want to, and there is venue under the federal law for that to occur. They could argue for transfer of venue, but uh, probably what they generally don't argue for transfer of venue in these cases. Uh, but the choice of law principles don't depend on that law being the venue of where the case is being presided over. So the, uh, in all likelihood, DC law will will apply. It's a, it's sort of federal law adopting the state law of the jurisdiction at issue even though it's a Florida federal judge who will be applying it. And under what the first requirement of malicious prosecution, abusive process is just kind of another form of malicious prosecution, um, which just means you've used the legal process in some way that was a, a lawful means, but an unlawful purpose. The first requirement is you have to have a dismissal on the merits. And their argument is, and what was unique about Flynn is two things are unique about Flynn. First that he pled to it and he later challenged the plea, but that's an unusual fact pattern for a malicious prosecution case. The second aspect is while the government ultimately moved to dismiss the case on grounds, there never was probable cause. The courts never approved it um, because uh, what happened was even though the government requested dismissal, Sullivan refused to do it, went up to the DC court of appeals it was you know it was kind of in place that the court should do so. It wasn't clear he was ever going to do so, so Trump ultimately pardoned him to prevent a scenario where Flynn could be you know left hanging in the wind and Trump no longer president. That also is a distinct a unique fact pattern as well. so the how that impacts you won't find many cases that fit this fact pattern in a malicious prosecution context. what he has going for him. Is twofold first, that the u s. Justice Department did make a formal statement to a court that not only demanded dismissal of the charges, but said there never was probable cause for the charges in the first place.
1: And let me stop you there because I forgot one important fact is that he withdrew his initial plea because it was determined that the Department of Justice withheld exculpatory evidence from Flynn. Um, and some people might say, well, why would he have pled guilty if, you know, if he knew he was innocent, the process is the punishment, but that that was a, a very material fact is that the Department of Justice withheld exculpatory evidence from Flynn, and so he pleaded that um as as the basis to one of the bases for I forgot that Emmett Sullivan for, <laughs> refused to grant the dismissal um, despite the fact that the government made the motion to dismiss itself, but they said it was all it was all partisan, and all partisan play, so he was right to like inquire further into the reasonings behind the.
2: Yeah, it was really nuts. So usually the hard part of a malicious prosecution case is if a grand jury has indicted you, state or federal, courts generally say you can't bring a malicious prosecution case because that's a almost to the point of non-reviewable finding of probable cause. And you, you have to not just show that you are innocent. You have to show there was no probable cause to bring a malicious prosecution claim. And that's a much lower standard than conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. However, what's unique here is that's precisely what the Justice Department said in their filing to Judge Sullivan. They said there was no probable cause here, and so uh, that you know probably gets him over the hurdle. Normally, you have to show that the grand jury was defrauded in some way, that there was perjured testimony, falsified testimony, very high burden to meet at the pleading stage, uh, even the pleading stage of a case. and But given what the government's official declaration that gave him once they made that. Uh, statement not only that we moved to dismiss but there's no probable cause here that gave him the basis to bring a malicious prosecution and abuse of process claims under the law of the district of columbia as applicable under the federal tort claims act so i think the case should get passed a motion to dismiss doesn't mean it will get passed a motion to dismiss but i think it should i think he has the legal merits and the factual predicate to do so uh, Tracy Beans of I think it's Uncovered DC. You can find her on Twitter. Was doing a long breakdown of his allegations and what it's also a very good. Uh, the the uh, I think it's Jesse Bennell brought the case, uh, and the they do a very good job of detailing the whole history, and that the whole history was at every single stage. The Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Justice violated. Not only their own rules, but rules that were intended to assure that only people who are, they had probable cause committed a crime had done so. Uh, they did so in that basically it was an entrapment uh, set up. It was a perjury trap at the interview stage. It was under false pretenses. They then misrepresented what took place at the interview by not recording their notes in a timely manner, by modifying their notes in ways that were contrary to the actual conversation, by not uh, tape recording aspects of the conversation. Then the Justice Department uh, withheld exculpatory information, not only from Flynn's defense, but also from the grand jury that issued the indictment. Uh, That would have been independent grounds to pursue malicious prosecution. Then they uh, threatened Flynn by going after his family for illicit purpose, you know, going after his son and threatening Mm -hmm. his son with prosecution. And uh, so they, he has the estate and that the whole background of this, was the illegal spying on the Trump campaign that it was part of what they you know what they called their you know their backup plan basically the, the insurance uh,
1: plan that that insurance Peter Stoke was talking about
2: exactly the insurance plan to take out Trump in case he were to win and so it, it, it present people want to know the whole Flynn story the complaint does a good job of detailing that whole story but I think he should have enough to get into uh, discovery uh, at a minimum. And the, there are some unique legal challenges he faces. Uh, it will probably be the luck of the draw, but, you know, Florida federal courts are a little better than the District of Columbia federal courts, that's for sure. And then the uh, 11th Circuit is probably a more friendly forum than the D.C. Circuit would be, uh, given what he went through in that, in that court, in that circuit. Maybe a fight over motion, over venue, we'll see. Um, but, the, uh, but it's a well-established federal claim based on the Justice Department's admissions and subsequent evidence that developed of bad faith conduct, which is what you need for malicious prosecution. You need not only you prosecuted someone without probable cause, there's been a determination that it's dismissed without probable cause, and you need malice. And uh, he has lots and lots of evidence of malice.
1: Uh, Stupid question, maybe. Is this going to be uh, jury trial or yeah, uh, judge. Okay,
2: yeah. If it goes to yeah, the, oh, yeah. I, I mean, if, so it, if the, ju- the motion to dismiss in summary judgment, yes.
1: Okay, so that's it. So the judge will adjudicate on those preliminary motions of law, and then if it ever gets anywhere past discovery, it'll be a jury a trial by jury. There, I can imagine. Well, Rob, they're gonna they, they'd want to then move venue to get to the District of Columbia if they can to avoid a jury in Florida. Problem
2: they have is that uh, the Florida federal judge would determine a move of venue. Generally, plaintiffs get to pick their own venue. There's a preference for that in law. He lives and resides in Florida. That's where the injury and damage has been accrued. It's not like there's a lot of critical witnesses that are only available in the District of Columbia. Um, so I don't see – there's a whole lot long list of grounds to transfer venue. Generally, federal courts don't transfer venue very often. So they may try, but that would speak volumes to uh, that their own recognition of bias in their favor in
1: the District of Columbia. And whenever you say grounds, I hear everyone in the chat going grounds <laughs> in reference to the other trial. Um, okay. Fascinating. And maybe I keep saying, I'm going to do like a new, a new vlog out of the car. They're just, they just take so much damn time. Um, Robert, the three, there's some Supreme court cases. And I know if you send me something, it's got some you know broader meaning than what I'm able to fathom uh, starting with the money gram. It's the, the abandoned instruments of, of sort of financial instruments Um I don't I don't exactly you know fully know the context of how there was an abandoned financial instrument or similar financial instrument of a moneygram interstate I guess somebody issued it died and they're trying to figure out um who owns this abandoned property the abandoned property being effectively a money order if anybody doesn't know what moneygram is it's like you're sending money from one person to another cross state and so I guess the sender died or the uh, it has to be no it would have to be the recipient died and
2: oh. Sometimes it didn't die, it's just, it's when the sender, so the sender usually goes in, pays cash for an amount of money to be transferred to someone else that they can pick up anywhere there's a MoneyGram location. If they have the monetary control number and identification that matches the ID of the person, the recipient. However, sometimes the recipient never picks it up, and we don't know why. Maybe dead, maybe something else. The next step is for MoneyGram to return it to the sender, but sometimes they have no means to reach the sender. And they don't gather certain data about the sender, uh, including legal residency in many cases. And so usually just some contact information. And so what happens is in those instances, the money escheats to the state. Uh, the state always has these wonderful estates. That's why everybody should have an estate plan. They, that if you don't, the government often gets to grab your land and property and money. And they, 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 like, it like, they, they like it that way. The, now, there's arguments that the IRS cheat laws should have never been that way. That's another point for another day. It goes back to principles where the divi- it goes back to divine rule, basically, that all property is really the king's property unless uh, otherwise determined. That's where a lot of his cheat law originates. That's why I'm not a fan of it. But putting that aside, so what happened is uh, the state where MoneyGram was incorporated, Delaware, was grabbing all the money. And this went that this had gone through fights in many different contexts in the past. And the federal courts have applied a common law rule. There's not a lot of federal common law. It's mostly state common law, but there's a little bit. And where there'd been no specific legislation, they would allow a state like the state of incorporation of the uh, of the company with the property for it to go there to that state. But Congress came in, didn't like that, changed the rules so that, in fact, it had to go to the state where the recipient made the original transaction. And uh, Delaware wasn't uh, honoring that because they were interpreting moneygrams to not be like checks and other written financial instruments that that specific law applied to. So the U.S. Supreme Court was deciding who gets this abandoned property, was interpreting federal law, and in the process of interpreting federal law determined that, in fact, this, this belongs to uh, that a MoneyGram instrument is just like a written check for the purposes of the law. And consequently, it's the state of the recipient that gets it. So Delaware is no longer going to get to this windfall that they were getting before. It's a unique case also because it's an original complaint case. It's a reminder that the federal courts, U.S. Supreme Court supposed to take these. These are disputes between states. A certain uh, prominent case in 2020 was a dispute between states where they have original jurisdiction. Somehow, in these cases, they have no problem asserting their proper as original jurisdiction, unlike that election case. They just couldn't find a way to take.
1: Uh, so, no, no broader, no broader meaning than that. Other than that, it's money orders are deemed to be the instruments, financial instruments of sorts. So, the state to which they were being sent, where you know, the, the state, recipient was.
2: Yeah, well, yeah. No, I'm sorry. There's, I think it's the state of the donor. Sorry.
1: Okay. Uh, interesting. But I know the other, the other, the other Supreme Court, uh, they haven't yet ruled on it, Robert, before we even get into your pleadings of last week. Uh, the student loan debate, Robert. Now, okay, we, we, we were talking about it in our vivabarneslaw.locals.com community. Um, I, I shared a link which it, it, the media fawning over the attorney representing uh, the government, that they have the authority to do this. They're fawning over her as an individual and not over the legal arguments that she's raising, like powerful, compelling, she was poised, and yada, 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 sort of glossing over the arguments, but uh, the arguments that they're, and I'm just getting suspicious when the media focuses too much on the individual, but not on the arguments, flags go off. As far as I can tell, the steel manning of the argument as to how this is a legal forgiveness of debt is to abstract from the student loan aspect of this. It's not sort of just a way to, you know, uh, get a few cheap votes with students, they're relying on COVID as if to say the the, the law that we're invoking to to grant this forgiveness of debt, it's because of a c- catastrophe, uh, you know, a, a, a pandemic. Whereas had this been a hurricane, an earthquake or whatever, and people who owed money had been incapable of repaying that money because of the crisis itself, well, there'd be no question. And therefore this pandemic is the excuse for which we can now forgive I don't know, however many hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan it is. Um, is, that, is that a very disingenuous argument that the Supreme Court, if they're so inclined, can sink their teeth into to, you know, for public support and to, to please the masses to say, yeah, we're going to forgive the student de- debt because it's not the forgiveness of the student's debt per se. It's because it was um, induced by this catastrophe known as COVID pandemic. Uh,
2: very little chance the Supreme Court goes along with that theory. The only way they have a chance to prevail is if the Supreme Court decides no standing to sue. And I don't think they'll be able to make that determination. Justice Thomas highlighted that question early on to those challenging the rule, and they explained very clearly how they had standing. They would be negatively impacted. What you have is some state entities that collect interest on these loans that would no longer be able to collect interest on those loans. And so they would lose a lot of money. And so the uh, so there's still that was always the key is who could sue, that was the tricky part. But they they found someone who could in fact sue, and so under those circumstance, and Biden administration tried to opt out of everybody else. But I think that uh, that should be sufficient for them to find standing. And if so, the Supreme Court will say this was not within the power of the president to claim covid emergency authority to radically rewrite the rules of contracts across the country.
1: Well the, the I mean I, I asked the question even though the, the moratorium uh was one another example where the supreme court sort of kind of seemingly went along with it but if this is going to be true for student loans why would the covid argument not be true for all debt?
2: Oh yeah or anything else. And remember ultimately they did reverse that moratorium. They said the moratorium was an excess of authority. They initially said they were going to give him a little more time. Biden continued with the moratorium. So they came back in and Kavanaugh flipped back and said, no, this was, you know, this was never constitutional. Um, and so if the moratorium on evictions is is not within the authority of the CDC, then uh, forgiveness of all student loan debt is not within the authority of the president.
1: Okay. And nothing more on that. So when are we supposed to hear, uh, get a judgment on that? It won't be next week. We, uh,
2: we won't know. It's usually several months.
1: Okay. Uh, the other one, F bar, or as I like to say, that left someone fubar. This is a provision of law that requires a filing in the event that you have a foreign bank account or interest in a foreign company. Uh, and if you should even unwillingly or unwittingly fail to provide this form this, on your declaration for taxes that you own uh, interest in a foreign corporation, foreign bank accounts, the government says we can fine you. for this unwilling, unwitting failure to report. Uh, In the case at hand, it's an individual who, for whatever the reason, and I don't know if he was a suspicious individual which allowed them to get this far up, had, it was either several hundred or several thousand uh, accounts uh, or interests. And the government fined him $10,000, not for the report, for failing to report it, but per account, what did it come to, $27 million or $2.7 million? It, I think it was, was $2.7 So they fine him $2.7 million. So everybody do the math as to how many infractions that has to be at $10,000 a pop. And he says, no, it's $10,000 for failing to report one report per year and not per account. And they took him to the Supreme Court of, I was going to say of Canada. They took him to the Supreme Court. And, you know, lo and behold, the Supreme Court said, no, that's not in the spirit or essence of the law. And I guess reduced it to $10,000 after he spent however many millions on legal fees. Uh, Robert, what what's the broader impact of this? And did I miss any details?
2: No, it, it, it's a massive, massive win for those fighting the IRS on FBAR issues. Because for those that don't, I mean, what is is You have a lot of people who are du- dual citizens in particular or Americans who go to work overseas. But like this is a classic example. This is a guy who was born in Romania, escaped communist Romania, uh, came to the United States. And then after communism fell in Romania, went back to Romania, worked in Romania, then years later came back to the United States, did even process the – this is not who, by the way, foreign bank account reporting was originally intended for.
1: What was it intended for originally? Dro- it like- was
2: intended for U.S. citizens that were using foreign bank accounts to evade taxes by hiding income offshore. That's who it was for. Not for people who are doing business overseas or have dual citizenships or are living overseas. That that wasn't the point or the purpose of it. um, uh, Originally, that's not how it was sold, at least when Congress passed it. But it's been widely misused and abused by the IRS. They've been ridiculously aggressive by multiplying the number of accounts. If somebody finds out they're behind. They file an account. They try, and also often it can catch accounts you don't think it catches. So if you even have ten thousand in an account at any point during a year, then it catches you. Most people don't think of it that way. If it was just like a brief transaction in, in an account, it catches accounts you have a so-called signatory or other interest in. This can be accounts you didn't, or you don't even control or own, or, or accounts that you may be a signature card holder but are not for you. Um, so it can catch a lot of innocent people and a lot of innocent conduct. And they were threatening and extorting people, basically, by using, by multiplying the, 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 the fine it was supposed to be per form. And they were saying, no, it's per account and per transaction and per year. And so they were multiplying it all over the place and, and extorting people into paying ridiculous sums of money. So it was very important the, IRS, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court come in and clarify this, clean this up revoke the IRS's authority to keep misusing and abusing its power in the F-bar context. And uh, so it was a great ruling on that side of the aisle.
1: P- Peter Rossi says, assuming guilt. No, not in this case. In this case, they—they they, the law says even unwittingly failing. You, you don't, yeah. It could be a, a, a bona fide, sincere accident. Oh, completely. No, <laughs> no willfulness really. required. All right. Now, um, I, I, we've been, I forgot we've been on Rumble and YouTube for 50 minutes, people. We're going to get into the Carrie Lake Supremes right now, and we're going to do it. Exclusively on Rumble and Locals, and not because we can't talk about it on YouTube, because it'll be on YouTube tomorrow. Just so that everybody watching this uh, will now know, go over to Rumble, and uh, YouTube gets the leftovers. Not live tomorrow, so we're ending on YouTube. Here's the link one more time to Rumble. It's in the pinned comment. People, go over there, see you there, and three three thousand three hundred forty eight people should be moving over to Rumble now. Three, two, one. Booyah! All
2: right. Sweet. Well, Good. And- There is a U.S. Supreme Court. The last U.S. Supreme Court case is that that big case about elections. Does the the, the state legislatures control the rules of presidential elections and other elections in particular Uh, pending before the U.S. Supreme Court stems from a decision made by the North Carolina Supreme Court? The North North Carolina Supreme Court in the midterm elections flipped from Democrat to Republican majority. The new Republican majority has said we're going to reexamine that decision because it was a very controversial decision at the time. Because of that, the U.S. Supreme Court has asked for additional briefing on whether they really need to continue to hear the case, given the North Carolina Supreme Court may reverse. So that big case may not end up being heard at the U.S. Supreme Court at all because the North Carolina Supreme Court is highly likely to reverse itself on that on that account. But the big other big election case are the two Arizona cases, Carrie Lake to the Arizona Supreme Court, and uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Abe Hamada. Uh, I'm sure I got that wrong. I apologize in advance. Uh, who was at CPAC this week talking with John Solomon of Just the News about his case still pending before the Arizona trial
1: courts. You, you might have to field both of these for the most part, and I'll ask my questions if I have any, because I'm not as familiar with what's going on as you are, obviously. Uh, starting with Carrie Lake, what's, what's the latest?
2: It's just that she filed for filed to the Arizona Supreme court requested expedited review and they granted it at this point. They've just granted that they're going to expedite review, not that they are actually going to take the case or hear the case. So that's all it's at right now. Uh, She has very good arguments because the Arizona court of appeals for reasons we have for articulated uh, the, the, there were many legal errors in that court's uh, decision, 11 page decision. Um, So the uh, if the Arizona Supreme Court wants to clean up its law governing elections, they should take the case, even if they weren't to rule in favor of Carrie Lake, they should at least clear up the law and clean up the law because there are many legal errors made that contravene and contradict Arizona Supreme Court's own precedent going back as far as a century of case law. So, And Abe Hamada described what's happening in his case is he has requested a new trial on his election contest because it turns out there were thousands of provisional ballots that had never been properly accounted for by Maricopa County, and that that would be, I think, his election margin is like 200 votes. It's the smallest election margin in the history, modern history of Arizona elections, uh, statewide elections. And if there's enough provisional ballots, it will change the outcome, and based on their initial review, three quarters of the provisional ballots in question are actually Republican ballots. And so these are for people that don't know a provisional ballot happens when for some reason, you're not allowed to vote at the, at the uh, election precinct. And so they say, okay, we'll let you vote a provisional ballot. You take your ballot, you cast your provisional ballot. And later, if it turns out you were entitled to vote, we'll then count your provisional ballot because provisional ballots are almost, well, by definition are all done at the precinct, at the voting center and given how Republicans were disproportionately showing up just on election day which Trump to his credit has realized now is a mistake that he did in 2020 uh, in his 2024 CPAC speech has reversed course on that so this can't happen again as easily um is that uh there were disproportionately republican ballots 3 to 1 republican ballots they've been able to confirm that by checking the uh names of the people on the on, that cast those provisional ballots and so if those provisional ballots are properly counted or just you know, like 10 percent of them are, it will change the election. And Abhammeda will be attorney general of Arizona. So we'll see if the Arizona courts have the courage to step up to the plate in his case. Uh, I wouldn't bet the bank on it, given the history of Arizona courts. sadly, an election contest, as we've seen in the Cary Lake contest. But he's got a very he's got an exceptionally strong factual grounds for that. He actually won the election uh, in 2020 for attorney general.
1: I'm blackpilled, Robert. I, I don't. I don't have faith in anything anymore. Um, and before we get into the other uh, subject matter where people are misunderstanding things potentially, and where I might be getting caught up in the frenzy, the WHO treaty and the risks that it might entail, let me uh, just bring up the Rumble rants because I'm able to now. Look at look how beautiful this is. Slammer sixty eight says RFK Jr. wins presidency. Barnes for attorney general. Viva for ambassador to Canada. I guess that's an that, that 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 would be funny. Uh, Lone Star Texas says Viva should do a Rumble-only interview with Ryan Dawson on the whole Epstein-Maxwell episode. He'd blow some minds here. Thanks for making uh, Jeremy McKenzie's story known, sir. Thank you. Jeremy McKenzie's uh, GoFundMe, not GoFundMe, holy cows, go F me. Uh, give, send, go ended Friday at noon at $36,000. And may, may Jeremy use that money uh, for the woes that he's going to go through in the near future. Fraser McBurney says, if you're Canadian and planning to vote for PP, watch this, that's Pierre Poiliev, watch this video. Oblivadan, how about we lose the military spending and the social spending, then we can all keep our money, donate to charity, and we won't need the social programs. And Grandpa's Place says, in rivers and bad government, the lightest things float to the top. You know, they say the cream rises to the top, but the unfortunate thing is, so does the S-H-I-T. Poop, well, unless you have, like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, We have
2: yeah, Speaking of which, we have one last election case to briefly cover. There's been a lot of media lies in the Dominion versus Fox case, and a, gr- a good breakdown. You know, I won't go into great detail here. Great breakdown by Glenn Greenwald, who pointed out how much the media was lying about it. This was this is what precipitated the Russell Brand debate on Mar Bill marr with the uh, John Heileman, the uh, uh the MSNBC uh, commentator. He was. Uh, falsely claiming that Fox personalities were saying something to their audience that they didn't believe, that they really believed the election was pure and the greatest election in history without any doubts, but they were telling their audience something different. This is false. Tucker Carlson believed there were serious issues with the election. He just didn't think the Dominion and Sidney Powell allegations were true, number one. Number two, he was public about that. He was one of the biggest critics of Sidney Powell at the time. So the media has been trying to take little clips and little pieces of Tucker Carlson's testimony and text records and creating this false narrative that he was deliberately lying to his own audience in order to maintain that audience. completely false. That's not what happened at all. Um, And so there's been a lot of misrepresentations. But for that, you can go to Glenn Greenwald's episode a couple of days ago on Rumble uh, that breaks it all down about the lies the media is spinning about I've been very critical of Fox on aspects of this, critical of people who push the Dominion theory as being a red herring, mostly. Uh, but uh, the media stories that are coming out are, are mostly false uh, against Fox.
1: I'm going to see if I can pull up the uh, the video from Glenn. It's 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 an hour long, so it's not quite, you know, like a car vlog. Um, and I'm going to, uh, uh, to probably talk about it at some point this week as well. And if you had not seen Russell Brand, what's that guy's name? Heidelman? Heidelman. Heidelman. Heilman, his, his uh, Twitter handle is an unfortunate J Heil, um, but uh, the, he's, he's having a... He pretends a, a, to
2: be like Hunter Thompson. He's nothing like Hunter Thompson.
1: Well, There's the back and forth. Hunter Thompson had. would have
2: probably shot him if he showed up on his property.
1: <laughs> there's um, He's having a back and forth with Russell Brand, and he says, give me one example of a reporter on MSNBC who came on air and lied and knew that they were lying and behind closed doors were saying, I'm going to go on air and lie. First of all, an impossible premise that he set up in the first place to presume what people knew and what they say behind closed doors. But setting that aside, Russell Brand then, you know, lets him have it. Boy, howdy. With all, I mean, there's just so many lies that they said on MSNBC. Whether or not Rachel Maddow actually believed that the vaccine stops transmission, doesn't matter. She said it. Whether or not she knew that it didn't when she said it, who the hell knows? She said it. It was false. They said things that were false on uh, the, the the Trump-Russia collusion hoax everything, time and time again, prove that they knew that what they said was a lie when they said it, impossible to do. Uh, all that we know is that it was false and they should have known better. And now that they made the mistake, they should be correcting themselves, which they're not, because that would undermine their credibility. Pathological liars. Who Speaking of uh, the pandemic, Robert. Okay, so I shared this link on our, uh, in our Locals community. Of um, I forget her name now. I'll have to find it. But the Locals knows it. It's, it's uh, someone who's in charge of a, a woman's rights entity raising the flag on this draft-proposed WHO treaty for basically a global pandemic response that, on its face, would seem to usurp all nations of their national autonomy and subjugate them to the WHO New World Government, One World Government, New World Order, whatever you want to call it. Um, We talked about it a couple times where we say, like, despite whether or not they draft a treaty, whether or not um, they, they, they become signatories to any international treaty, These treaties have to go by, they have to go through national law in the states. It has to get ratified by two thirds of the Senate, if I'm not mistaken, Robert.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the, so there's some people out there that believe that the, the president of the United States can unilaterally discard the constitution. They think he can say, oh, I've signed a treaty that hereby denounces the constitution and now it overrides. No, can't happen. All right. So, And they're getting confused on executory agreements. Executory agreements means that whatever the president can lawfully do now, he can lawfully do. That's it. In other words, the president can sign an agreement with another country, with a bunch of countries, with another international organization, that in terms of his lawful powers, he will exercise those in a manner consistent to that agreement. Its enforceability is always an open doubt, but putting that aside, who can sue or get remedy? If he doesn't, is oh, but that's it. What he, he can't pass legislation, he can't do anything that's unconstitutional. So, the uh, it, and that doesn't make a treaty law. So, all this nonsense out there that people are saying, oh, they they can circumvent, no, they can't. You the president can't just say, I hereby ignore the constitution and discard it because I signed a treaty, doesn't happen that way,
1: can't happen. Robert, can't happen, period. At the, at the risk of people calling you controlled opposition or Mossad now some people are raising the argument that there is arguably or might be an attempt to circumvent, what is it, it's the Vienna Convention on Treaties or whatever the Vienna law is on treaties, which does stipulate the procedure through which nations have to integrate into their national law any treaty that might be signed at the international scale. Um,
2: That's just on the Vienna provision. Our U.S. Constitution governs everything. So nothing's constitutional unless it's constitutional. And the only way any law, can be governing law under Article 6 of the United States Constitution requires three things to happen in a treaty context. First, the president must propose the treaty to the Senate. Second, the Senate must pass by two-thirds consent that pass that treaty. Thir- even then, no, no enforceable law in the United States, un- no implementing legislation until the legislative branch by the House and the Senate and the president sign implementing legislation. Even then, uh, if that law delegates too much authority to a, uh, like let's say the World Health Organization, to where the World Health Organization is doing legislation, which is the proposal under this treaty, that they get to pass their own rules to implement and enforce this, that that violates the major questions doctrine of our separation of powers. So they can't do it. Last but not least, it still has to pass the rest of the Constitution. So even if they pass a treaty, you can't pass a treaty and implementing legislation that says First Amendment gone, can't happen. For that, you need to amend the Constitution, which requires support by Congress and the states. So unless you amend the Constitution, the Constitution still limits what that treaty can do, including can't violate First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, Seventh Amendment, or the Tenth Amendment, which reserves things like pandemic policy, for the most part, to the states. Uh, So consequently, uh, there's now people are right to be concerned that the World Health Organization wants to run the world because that's what they want to do under the guise of pandemic control. They want to control equity policy. They want to control economic policy. They want to control local public health policy. They want to control a social policy. They want to control everything. So your people are right to say this is a one world government globalist uh, power grab. Where they're mistaken is they can't just unilaterally do it in violation of the Constitution.
1: But uh, the, the provisions of law of which you speak relate to treaties. Now, wh- what about the argument that some people are raising? They're going to try to. Well, they're, gonna, they're not even going to call it a law. They're going to call it an agreement, a bilateral yeah, that accord. It doesn't matter.
2: doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what they call it. It isn't governing law in the United States. It is unenforceable. Uh, and if there's an attempt to enforce it, violates the Constitution. So anybody can sue and win.
1: But Robert, the, the moratorium, viol- I mean, the, the moratorium which had to go to the Supreme Court. Oh, of- people can
2: always argue that the Biden administration may try to do so, but they don't need a treaty for that. They can try that right now. I mean, the, the treaty doesn't change their constitutional power. And it was, might somebody try to violate the Constitution? Of course, the treaty makes no difference in that context. That, that's the executive branch still trying to violate the Constitution. Well, their pretext, their excuse has no legal bu- effect of any kind.
1: And that is the argument that they're going to say, "Well, Biden will come up with an executive order. We hereby recognize the agreement yeah, not the he, treaty. he could do
2: that uh, but the, it only he could only do so to the degree of what he could do right now. So if it isn't constitutional for him to do it right now, it's not constitutional because they signed a treaty for it that that means that has no legal effect whatsoever, and so people are being misled
1: on that aspect well I am um... I watched the interview. I, I watched the, the, that person give the interview. I got a little nervous because now I understand the underhanded manners in which they can try to implement as, by way of executive order or whatever, you know, whatever surreptitious method. It's not a treaty, so we're circumventing the, the, the Vienna
2: Accord. Right. But it's-, it's like the climate accords. They mean nothing. Same with, like, people are worried about UN the various UN agendas that are out there, 2030, 2050, Agenda 21, et cetera. Uh, all of it's non binding. So should people be concerned about that there's an agenda out there that under the climate apocalypse predictions, uh, it wants to, you know, completely control society? Yes. Are those legally binding? No. They have no legally binding effect on the United States whatsoever.
1: You have not assuaged me. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, anyways, now you've heard it, folks. So you know where the risks are, and you you do make a good point. Right
2: to be concerned. Don't take the bait on thinking that somebody can unilaterally overturn
1: our constitution. They can't. Well, but, and most people don't know of the internet, the the procedure, the national procedure, federal, and in Canada the same. That's required to implement in national law a treaty that's signed at the international level. There is, I just, you know, there is some merit to the idea they're going to slip it in through the back door, call it an agreement, try to circumvent treaties laws. Um, in the states, come in by way of executive order, and in which case, you know. You, have fun at the courts for the next three years, uh, and while you're not collecting rent or whatever, whatever else, you know the who wants to implement the the bigger risk, however, is that it's just going to be private enterprise that's going to implement these the measures, not governments, and, um, tough, and tough, tough, tough shit.
2: Yeah, and there was concern in that same respect as to fifteen minute cities. Uh the the there's a legitimate concern
1: and mistaken concern at the same time about. that. It, sorry, uh, I'm not familiar with this at all. Fifteen minute cities.
2: Yes, so. The original idea for 15-minute cities uh, was that everything should be within 15 minutes walking distance or bicycle distance uh, for all your essentials. The goal was uh, originally, actually, as a new urbanist, urbanism movement that was intended to actually recreate small communities. Um, that was the point of it. Um, so the now what's happened is it's been hijacked by some people who want to distort it and contort it into a control mechanism and you know quasi concentration camp in your neighborhood protocols by saying you know what we're going to do is under the guise of environmentalism and uh, and disguised as a 15-minute city plan we're going to suddenly put filters on the traffic on, on when you can leave your own neighborhood uh by vehicle and so the and people rightly in oxford and other places were like whoa this is insane so what's happening is there's legitimate everything's getting thrown into they hear the words 15 minute plan now and some people are thinking that automatically means the oxford plan of trying to control your ability basically locking you into your neighborhood that's not what 80 percent of 15 minute plans mean or what's historic meaning that's the misapplication misappropriation of the term to try to get away with something else an ulterior agenda that's being set uh and that and that that part's a legitimate concern The fact checkers, of course, are getting this fact check wrong as usual uh, about this uh, in terms of how they're describing the legitimate concerns they're too dismissive of, uh, while some people on the right are ignoring the – there's another context for the 15-minute plan historically that doesn't have this nefarious aspect. And so it's important to balance out and correct what exactly is being propounded or proposed in a particular case. Uh, But. You know, the, the we got a lot more than 15 minutes for the oral argument in the big case of the week, Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer.
1: Robert, and look, uh, I'll, I'll toot your horn just in case you're too modest to do it. Uh, it is arguably one of the biggest, I can't imagine a bigger whistleblower case in the history of the world. Um, we Um I was just talking about with someone today where we're talking about the idea that it's now become mainstream accepted if it's not proven you know very likely that this originated in a lab in wuhan china a lab that we now know was being indirectly funded by fauci himself through this i forget what the the name of the third party ngo is eco health alliance or whatever um can you imagine and and now globally they attribute what nine million deaths to covid nine million deaths uh it's a, it's a form of genocide. I mean, I, I like uh, genocide, you say it has to be intentional. So when, you know, when there's a starvation under the Soviets, it's not genocide. It's just bad governance. We're talking in the order of 9 million people who might have died, uh, at the hands of government funded gain of function research coming out of a lab in China that was denied, known to be potentially true, if not true, while denied people lying under oath, uh, before Congress. And then As conveniently as this might be, set aside all the death, the government empowers itself beyond any realm of the wettest, wet dreams of a Hitlerian dictator. Uh, Big Pharma begins lining their pockets by signing these contracts, which we're going to get into in a second, about, you know, procurement of, of vaccines, which... They never test for effectiveness on transmissibility despite the warranties and representations that they make to the public. They make tens of billions of dollars while putting out a a jibby jab that might actually be causing the deaths of an additional hundreds of thousands of people, and likely so based on the numbers. It's, it's, It's horrific hell on earth in reality. Like, it's the apocalypse has already happened to some extent. But, not to get too ahead of ourselves, Brooke Jackson, the FISA whistleblower, came out and said that these trials were. Bunk would not be a word. My my question to you, Robert, is why would they even conduct the trials instead of just pretending to conduct them? Like, why even do it and leave this mess as evidence? Just lie about it. Make the whole thing up. Who the hell's going to know? At least you won't have any evidence of wrongdoing because nothing will have been done. Brooke Jackson came out um, whistleblow. Um, you filed a tam lawsuit, which you're going to have to, you know, re- refresh everybody's memory again. And uh, then filed lawsuit against against Pfizer for reprisals for her um, having blown the whistle. And you had oral arguments, and I think the oral arguments were on the Ketam aspect that the government has made a motion to dismiss, uh, or sorry, Pfizer made the motion to dismiss, government jumped on board, and you had your oral arguments last week. They lasted longer than you expected. Give us the rundown, how it went down, and whether or not you feel optimistic or uh, whether or not anybody should feel stupid for feeling optimistic. (laughs)
2: <laughs> the all right, yeah, so the uh Brooke Jackson has brought a claim she was involved in uh clinical trial work in in the pharmaceutical uh, arena for better part of two decades uh was a supporter of vaccines, uh wanted to see this vaccine work, was brought in to supervise part of the process on behalf of the, uh Ventavia that was subcontracted by Pfizer to perform the the clinical uh, third stage of the clinical trials to assure the safety and efficacy and the immunization capacity of the COVID-19 drug for the prevention of COVID-19 When she was there over about a three-week time frame, she witnessed extraordinary malfeasance and misfeasance. This includes, but is not limited to, the complaint has hundreds of paragraphs and hundreds of additional evidence of documentary uh, evidence and testimonial evidence where she witnessed extraordinary and exceptional breaches of the basic standards and rules and regulations Governing clinical trials to assure, you know, clinical trials are the only metric we have to measure whether a drug is safe and effective and has immunization capacity. So this was the key measurement uh, in order to be able to know what this drug would do. And what she saw was needles sticking out of bags. What she saw was people's private information plastered on walls. What she saw were people being rolled out in corridors uh, without, you know, suffering in some cases adverse events without being monitored. People's blood being taken in the wrong way. People informed consent not being given. Uh, It was supposed to be a randomized placebo blinded test. It was neither randomized nor uh, placebo-blinded in any meaningful manner. It was unblinded repeatedly. They weren't even giving the vaccine at the proper temperature. They weren't taking baseline data to even know what the effect of the vaccine was. And what they did is instead they went in and doctored the data, fabricated the data, falsified the certifications, falsified fraudulently, and submitted fraudulent invoices to the defense department and to the Food and Drug Administration. So in September or fall of 2020, she calls uh, the FDA. Let, because first she goes up to her entire chain of command, says, hey, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. The feedback she gets is that this is systemic, that there's nothing they can do to fix it, that because they're under such a rush timetable by Pfizer, there's no way they can get done what needs to get done in time. So their only choice is to behave in this way. And so ultimately, when they're unable or unwilling to remedy it, she directly contacts uh, the Food and Drug Administration. Whoever she contacted at the Food and Drug Administration appears to have turned around and told Pfizer about it. And by the end of the day, she was fired. Uh, So she's summarily uh, released, dismissed. She then goes to the government with this information, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, there in the Eastern District of Texas, Uh, cases brought in Beaumont, Texas, Uh, opens an investigation, keeps the case sealed for more than a year while they conduct this investigation. We still don't know what the results of that investigation were because we've never been given the outcome of that. Um, So we file suit and an amended complaint under the False Claims Act, sometimes called the Key Tam Laws, as well as a retaliatory discharge claim against Ventavia. And this is a law that was put in place after the end of the Civil War. What happened during the Civil War is often in collusion with corrupt government agents, the various uh, contractors and vendors uh, for the Civil War, providing things like blankets, food, shoes, guns, you name it, uh, were po- providing bad blankets, bad food, bad medicines, bad boots, bad shoes to people, ripping them off in mass. Congress and the American people were enraged after the end of the Civil War. And so Congress passed a law that said, you, the ordinary American person, if you know a whistleblower claim, you can bring suit on behalf of the American people. And Brooke Jackson bravely and courageously did so. She did so after she's summarily fired for talking to the FDA. She does say well, after the Pfizer lawyer tries to get her on the phone within 24 hours. How did the Pfizer attorney know this? How is he aware of this? Uh, She does so despite the fact that sometimes her mail is being opened up before she opens it. Uh, That kind of thing is happening at an escalating level, but she doesn't let that get to her, bother her. And when the government appeared to be slow playing the case, slow rolling the case under the Biden administration, uh, she uh, disclosed the underlying information, which she's legally entitled to, uh, to the the British Medical Journal to let them independently investigate. This is one of the most well-regarded, well-respected, peer-reviewed publications in the world on medical science. They independently vouch, independently verify, independently vet all of her allegations, and they conclude she is precisely telling the truth. They out the uh, Pfizer's misconduct. The article goes big throughout Europe, maybe part of the reason why various European governments start pulling back the vaccine authorizations. It, the U.S. media tries to suppress the story. Uh, we serve the suit and it's unsealed. After it's unsealed, the government chooses not to intervene in the case. Uh, we, uh, uh, that allows us to unseal the case.
1: Sorry, the government says we're not intervening, meaning Brooke Jackson, you're free to do it on your own, but we're not taking up the case for and on your behalf.
2: Correct. And they notified me. They wanted us to keep them informed. At no point during this time period did the government say that her case was, an, it was anything but legally correct and valid the, uh, through this whole time frame. Then Pfizer uh, moves to dismiss the case. Uh, they demand a hold on all discovery and abatement of discovery until the motion to dismiss is heard. We object to that. The court rules in Pfizer's favor on that. And I was critical of the court on some of those decisions. Uh, and, uh, but the court scheduled oral argument on the motion to dismiss. Uh, and to the court's credit, I, I think whatever the decision the court makes, it will be made based on the court's honest interpretation of the law. Uh, Even if I disagree with it, it will be an honest disagreement about the law, not anything else. Some people were concerned because Pfizer had hired one local counsel that turned around and hired Brooks, former local counsel. Then Pfizer hired another local counsel that was the former law partner of the judge. So they were concerned about this. My impression of the court is it's a straight shooter, honest, independent court that's going to make. And even though I've been critical of some of the court's past decisions, The court presided over this hearing with complete fairness, Complete allowed a full, robust discussion and debate. Questions were insightful and incisive, showed a complete recognition of the pertinent facts and material issues of law. Um, And so uh, it was one of the fairest hearings I've ever experienced. And I, to be honest with you, wasn't expecting it. Um, I understand people's skepticism about the federal judiciary's willingness and readiness to uh, deal with corrupt, big, powerful entities when the government's not demanding they do so. And so the U.S. government did not move to dismiss itself. It simply uh, filed a statement of interest in the case. Uh, and the Biden Justice Department was like, please, Judge, please let Pfizer's dismiss it. We're not moving to dismiss Government didn't show up to make any arguments in favor of dismissal at the at the oral argument, despite being invited to do so by the court. Uh, I believe that the local U.S. attorneys do not agree with the decision that's being made at the top of the Biden Justice Department. And there's and they even tried to the Pfizer people tried to say, well, Barnes is suggesting there's some sort of political conspiracy afoot. That's very common sense. This isn't about Trump versus Biden. This isn't about Republican versus Democrat. The top-ranking officials in the Biden administration have a patent conflict of interest. They chose to mandate this drug on members of the military, on their employees, on their contractors, on their vendors, many of whom have now been injured by that. So they have no interest in the world finding out what a big, fat fraud Pfizer pulled on the whole world, an orca whale-sized fraud uh, on the whole world. And that's why, in my opinion, there was this sudden Belated statement of interest uh, that became Pfizer's predicate at the hearing. The court allowed almost four hours of argument. Uh, it was the longest oral argument in a federal district court I've ever been a part of. The uh, court, uh, the way it started, we walked in. Uh, it's me, uh, Warner Mendenhall, uh, Lexis Anderson, a very a young lawyer right out of law school, about a year out or so. This was her first oral argument ever, and you know th- this is how I like to intern young lawyers. I told her about a week before, I was like, uh, why don't you have your first oral arguments? Part of this case, uh, be taking part of the oral argument. It's just one of the biggest cases in the history of the country. Uh, But but she was game. She was spirit. uh, And she made very effective, uh, good advocacy for Brooke Jackson's retaliation claim before the court. The court, to its credit, is one of those judges that's very cognizant that young lawyers are not getting opportunities. And so he has special protocol in place to encourage and invite young lawyers to make argument on motions. He's like, the only way we're going to get skilled young, skilled lawyers at any point is if they're in the courtroom getting to take responsibility up from the beginning. And Lexis Anderson's a very young, conscientious lawyer who's very committed to these causes, is litigating these cases all across the country as part of my firm uh, and did a great job. So, but we quote it's us uh with Brooke Jackson. Uh, uh credit to a lot of ordinary people who showed up. They packed the courtroom. Uh it's probably one of the few times the federal courtroom for an oral argument on a motion to dismiss has ever been packed in Beaumont, Texas. Um, there was media outside and all of that. Uh it was independent media, Epoch Times, other people like that, InfoWars, uh of note, the institutional media was still hiding and pretending the case didn't exist. And so uh we go in, and I, you know, the now, there's a, the local counsel uh, that's from Beaumont, very nice guy on the defense side, very friendly. You know, I, I knew his reputation beforehand, for, and not you know, totally up and up uh, guy. The rest of the lawyers were usually I'm kind of the rude one against corporate lawyers or government lawyers in the courtroom. I uh, don't want to, you know, I'm just not always, you know, be buddy, buddy. But I always try to be civil and polite. And the court had been had emphasized the importance of that in the court's mind. Uh, I, I got the rudest treatment I'd ever got. Uh, and that's saying something because I've had some rude treatment. The uh, but uh, the 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 Pfizer lawyers were you know just stare down, wouldn't you know shake hands, wouldn't engage, wouldn't talk. It was just I, I was the evil doer who had who brought this terrible, horrible case against this great, great def, you know uh, reputable company. Reputable, it's reputable, all right, uh, but not just in a good way.
1: Two point two point three billion dollars in criminal and civil penalties in two thousand nine. Johnson and Johnson had two point two billion in two thousand twelve. Two of the top three highest um, payouts for criminal and civil liability, or criminal and civil penalties in pharmaceutical history. Sorry.
2: Pfizer's the biggest criminal drug dealer in history. They make El Chapo look like a street corner dealer by comparison. So the, uh, the, the, the book, The Constant Gardener uh, by Joan Le Carre, made into the movie uh, uh, but the, of the same name. Was based on Pfizer's illicit and illegal experiments, or was uh, influenced and in, and in, you know that was the where they got the idea for uh, in Africa. Uh, so that gives you an idea of who Pfizer is uh, one of the one of the worst offenders in the country, in the world. So uh, we go in, we sit down. Uh, the judge gives his sort of decoy. He says, "Look, I'm not making a ruling today. I, I want robust argument. I want everybody to be civil, but I have some questions out of the gate for Mr. Barnes." Uh, I think I was the only lawyer the judge identified by name, so he was. Uh, For good or bad, he was already familiar with the uh, I get up and I had in my argument structured, I had uh, what I brought into court was two pieces of paper and uh, well, not two, literally two packets of paper. And both of them were the contracts, the statement of work and the base agreement. And on the very back last page, I had all my notes. I try to have only one page of notes for oral argument and I'll have little little citations and little things that will cue in my brain. Like little doors in a house, like Cicero recommends for means of, of learning and means of uh, uh, m- uh, memory recall. Uh, things that were, it would go through arguments that I had mapped out in my head. Uh, the judge asks three questions, uh, or, or goes to three portions of the contract, as first three questions. They were my first three that I was actually going to make in my argument. There are the very three provisions of the contract I was going to build my entire argument around.
1: And let me, let me pause you there for a second. This is the contract that has been shared and highlighted in our VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com community.
2: That's right. You can go okay. to it, find it yourself right there. It's pinned at the top, uh, and you can go through. I've highlighted a whole bunch of sections, and you can see it and read it for yourself. So the first thing he reads, the very first question he asks, the very first provision he reads is, Mr. Barnes, doesn't this provision right here state? that Pfizer will meet all requirements of the Food and Drug Administration for clinical testing. Isn't that what it says? Because remember, Pfizer's argument is our contract didn't require us comply at all with any FDA rules and requirements. And it, just, it doesn't that say that? Oh, well, yes, you are. Second question. There's a provision that Pfizer was deliberately misinterpreting. Pfizer kept saying that they all the rules were out of scope. For the project. The way Pfizer did so was by just lying to the court and to the world by not quoting the sentence that that word, that phrase out of out of scope comes from, because right before the words out of scope are the words not related to this project. So what it says is, by the way, we have all these rules and requirements about clinical testing, chemical compounds, manufacturing protocols, all regulatory requirements, all these provisions to the extent they apply to something. Not related to this vaccine project. That's outside the scope of the project. They're just making clear we're not superimposing a new supervisory structure over Pfizer, unrelated to the uh, what's called the large-scale manufacturing process, which is the definition of the whole vaccine project that's being paid for.
1: Their their argument was that their deficiencies and any deficiencies that there might have been in the trials would have been out of scope and therefore not bound by any FDA or contractual requirements under this agreement.
2: Correct. Even though the language that take, they had to strip the the whole sentence out for the, for the end, all the rest of the claims uh, for that to be there. And so the judge says, isn't this what this says? Yes, your honor. And he says, and then it's the section three. Look at this one. He goes, doesn't this reference that there's going to be no payment, no deliverable until there's FDA approval and authorization? And doesn't that, at least by application, bring in that first sentence that says Pfizer will meet all requirements of the Food Drug Administration for uh, the clinical testing? Yes, Your Honor. So, uh, needless to say, I was—I mean, when he first called me up, I was like, "Oh man, I hope this isn't like a long lecture, and we're going to get into a whole, you know, whatever." I, I thought it might go a wall, might go sideways.
1: Uh, Mr. Barnes, did you tw- did you tweet this out on on January twenty
2: third, uh, Mr. Barnes? Have you been on TV with this Canadian rebel, troublemaking <laughs> lawyer, no, Davis, Viva Fry?
1: Nobody, no, nobody got in there saying Bobby Barnes, Bobby Barnes. No, nobody, n- none of that this time around. No, no. The, I mean, the, like you said, one of the best hearings I've ever been a
2: part of. Uh, what, even if the judge issues an opinion I disagree with, it will be solely because he has a different legal interpretation than I do. Very sincere, very well intended. Uh, one of the best conducted hearings I've seen.
1: So, because um, th- 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 there were three things, there was one which had to be uh, out of scope. Two, you don't get payment unless you meet uh, unless you produce a deliverable that meets the FDA requirements. What was the third? The third. Well, uh, the first
2: one point? was right at the very beginning of the contract that says Pfizer will meet the all the rules requirements and regulations of the food and drug administration for clinical testing that's the very first question he asked doesn't it say that doesn't it say that right there so the that was the that was the entire architecture of my argument before we even got an argument so i was like yes sir and then he was like okay so if i understand correctly you're bringing three claims you're bringing a claim of uh, ex- express fraud you're bringing a claim of implied fraud and you're bringing a claim of fraud in the inducement do i understand that correctly? Yes, sir. And he goes, and, and that's these provisions, in your view, support that. Yes. All right. He says, now we can go move on. I was like, well, this is going a lot better than I thought. So I uh, sat down. Pfizer got up and made all its whiny arguments. It kept quoting the out of scope thing in the wrong way over and over again. It realized they were in trouble. So what Pfizer started doing was saying, judge, the government says don't do it. Judge the government filed a statement of interest. Don't do it, Judge. The government said, "Don't do it." It's not in fact. They went further. They said, "You judge. You don't even have the power or the authority to govern us. If the FDA says we're okay, end of story. Judge, you can't even investigate further. Nobody can investigate further."
1: Their representation of the government's position is probably as uh, disingenuous as their interpretation of the first, (laughs) the first three, the first three points we discussed. So the 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 government not getting involved was not a we oppose formally or. Uh, We support anything. It's figure it out, and we don't want to get involved at all.
2: Correct. And and all they said was the statement of interest said dismissal is supported by Pfizer's claim. But we're not joining the motion to dismiss. But dismissal is supported by these interpretations. But we're not joining the motion to dismiss. So the... uh, uh, and, and, and the court highlighted they had been invited to participate and said, nope, nope,
1: nope, we're not showing up. Let me ask you another question, though. Is it possible that the government is not speaking out of both sides of its mouths, but rather just it doesn't want to positively affirm a statement that it knows to be false? So they just say Pfizer saying it. If what Pfizer says is true, then dismissal yeah. is warranted, but they don't get in trouble that's... for making. OK,
2: correct. That, that's my view. And I think there's a conflict. I think the local office that's being required to file that statement of interest didn't have any interest in filing that statement of interest. That came from somebody at the Biden Justice Department that panicked at the last minute that thought we're going to win. Brooke Jackson's going to win and get into discovery. And that's going to embarrass a bunch of high ranking Biden administration officials who mandated this thing. So by golly, you shut it down. And they got this compromised mealy mouth piece of paper. Uh,
1: is it ever too late for the government to say we're taking up the case for and on oh, behalf no, of Brooke? Never too now, late. But it, if they do that, is there not a, a conceivable fear, if I'm thinking conspiratorially, that they can do that only so they can sort of uh, proceed, but not as vigorously as Brooke Jackson and you might do it?
2: Uh, there's always that risk. Uh, so the uh, the the point that my colleague and co-counsel Warner Mendenhall made in his part of his argument was – Judge, if the government wanted to dismiss, they have all the legal authority to come in and actually dismiss. So they haven't moved to dismiss. They're not even here. So all this claim about, please, judge, please, judge, look at this statement of interest. Please don't let it go further. Please don't let it go further. Please don't let it go further. is is a weak argument. They tried to convince the judge that it's binding precedent in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that if the government isn't pursuing the case, the judge is not allowed to pursue the case. And the judge was like, "Hold on a second. Are you telling me that even if you lied to the FDA, and even if there is a political conspiracy afoot to keep these lies secret, that the federal judiciary has no role in the process under the False Claims Act?" And Pfizer's lawyer, "That's right. That's right, Judge." Uh, so their argument is one from power, not from principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the uh, when I got up to make my argument, given that he'd already made my initial argument for me in those line of questions. Um, and, and he, and it was clear he wasn't taking a side. He was just showing, I know what the arguments are on both sides. Uh, so once I realized, okay, I don't have to hammer home to him that what the contract says, because he's asking the questions out of the gate, telling me this is what the contract says. He knows that. And he'll figure out what the law is subsequently and make his own determination and decision. But so I focus on the broader philosophical background. And, and and I think it's always I don't recommend people have like written arguments for all argument. I always just you know have some little notes and have multiple paths you can go down so you can play it live because you never know where the other side might go. You may you never know where the court may go. You don't know how things might you know progress. So be able to shift on a dime. And you can only do that I'm for cross examination and other things like this, too. You can only do that if you're not locked into a script. You have multiple options laid out for you. OK, here's what I'm going to do with this. Here's what I'm going to do with this. In the in the one U.S. Supreme Court case, everybody agreed uh, was the big case in the False Claims Act for determining what's called materiality, because that was their main argument. Their main argument was what their plausibility argument was, Judge, she only witnessed this version of the fraud that happened at these three places. Let's just assume it didn't happen anywhere else, even though there's evidence that it did. Uh, and so it's not substantial enough to mean that all the vaccine clinical trials were bad. Uh that argument doesn't fly because that's a discovery issue because we have a pred- credible grounds to assume that what she witnessed was commonplace, not rare and exceptional. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two. And you know, if they lied about that, why wouldn't they lie about a bunch of other stuff? The uh, but number two on the materiality issue, the U.S. Supreme Court did in 2016 issued a unanimous decision in the case called Escobar uh, that arose out of Massachusetts, the where basically what was happening was a medical clinic. Was providing uh, people that weren't qualified to provide mental health services to somebody's kid who ended up dead, and they sued saying you really committed fraud because you sought reimbursement from Medicaid for those services when your people weren't even qualified to do so. But there was nothing explicitly in the contract between the Medicaid and the state health health and the <coughs> health facility that required them to be able to uh to have to disclose that. And so the issue was okay, that's an implied theory of fraud. U.S. Supreme Court said absolutely an implied theory of fraud exists, number one. Number two, it was a unanimous decision. Number three, it's the biggest decision in, the, in, in this area of law by everybody's recognition. And last but not least, it was written by the one, the only, the inimitable Justice Clarence Thomas. And so I went right to Justice Clarence Thomas explain what materiality is. I was even having this debate with, with somebody on our board that was like, well, if you look at the contract, the contract's really focused on the manufacturing part, the production and distribution part. But it makes clear at the very beginning of the contract why that is. It says, look, Pfizer will meet all these requirements, and we don't have to superimpose our own U.S. Army requirements because Pfizer will meet those requirements already. We don't have to replicate all the FDA rules because Pfizer will meet those. And, and the safety and efficacy of all the rest is repeated throughout the entire document. If, if for a document that supposedly has, according to Pfizer, nothing to do with clinical trials, kind of weird how clinical trials comes up over and over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in that contract. You might say the President Trump designed a beautiful contract, maybe the greatest contract ever. That's what some people are saying. So the, that's what the contract required, complete compliance. So I went to the court and said, let's get back and let's look at the broader policy here. Justice Thomas said, when you're trying to figure out materiality, was the lie um, uh, uh, something of consequence? Uh, Could it, uh, you don't have to prove it would have, you only have to prove it could have impacted the decision maker in writing that check, billion dollar checks. Uh, In fact, the the court pointed out, it was like this one invoice, $154 million. You're saying I can't investigate? That's the other thing the court found. The court. Highlighted in that very beginning set of questions. That's the only thing I forgot to mention. Uh, he said, doesn't the in- this invoice here, right? And does this invoice say that this will be in accord with and work performed by in accord with the agreement? Doesn't it say that uh, for this $154 million? Yes, it does, Judge. Good point. The uh, That's the explicit fraud as well as the implied fraud. So uh, on top of fraud and the inducement, all of which are recognized theories for false claims. And so I said, let's look at the broader policy. Justice Thomas just broke through the brass tacks. And what he explained was when you're trying to figure out materiality, ask yourself, what is the very essence of the bargain? What is the very essence of the deal? He goes, let me give you an example. Let's say the government buys firearms. And it turns out the firearms don't actually fire. He goes, but let's assume that wasn't in the contract. Let's assume there's no rule or regulation that even requires it. Can they get away with it? Can they get away with delivering firearms that don't fire? He goes, of course not, because the very essence of the bargain is that the firearms fire. So my point was, Judge, what does all these documents say? What is the very essence of the bargain here? The Trump Defense Department specifically said over, 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 over again, here's what you're going to deliver to us. Here's what we want. Here's what we're seeking, a safe effective vaccine for the protection of COVID-19. And by the way, they distinguish those things. They say there's three things you could give us, something that's diagnostic, something that's for treatment, or something that's for prevention. And remember, the definition of vaccine in the contract was prior to the FDA changing that definition a little bit later. So they were using the definition of immunization. So they said what we want is a safe effect. They, they know drug companies can produce placebos at scale. It wasn't about, hey, can you produce 500 million
1: pills tomorrow? Saline, saline, saline injections. We can produce them. Yeah. All right. Yeah,
2: That wasn't what was the defense prototype being sought here. They wanted to say, they said, Pfizer, you're telling us you can deliver a safe, effective vaccine for the prevention of COVID-19 at speed and scale. And so while a lot of the contract is focused on speed and scale, it's only doing that because it keeps emphasizing you're going to comply with those FDA rules for safety, efficacy, vaccination and prevention of COVID-19. Remember that. Remember that. Remember that. That's why it says it in plain language right at the beginning of the contract. And so my point to the court is very simple, Judge. just like the firearm that didn't fire. What Pfizer delivered was a drug that
1: wasn't safe, wasn't effective, <laughs> wasn't a vaccine and wasn't for the prevention of COVID-19. Yeah. If all that this thing did was not work, it would have been better. <laughs> it, it seems that it would have been better than what it actually did. To
2: it. Oh, fire- if it had just been ineffective. Uh, it, the, but it wasn't, it wasn't a vaccine. It didn't inoculate against uh, the, uh, the transmission but or let, infection. Let me,
1: st- let me stop you there, though. Uh, it used the, the, the definition of vaccine before the FDA changed it, um, but it was changed in 2015, was it not? No, uh, this current definition
2: of uh, not requiring immunization wasn't changed until late 2019, early 2020. Okay. After the, uh, I'm sorry, late 2020, early 2021. And so. After the
1: contract was done. So when when it uses the term vaccine, when I'm reading this contract, it was using it in the sense that we typically understood it in that it would prevent infection.
2: And we know that because it keeps saying for the prevention of Mm COVID-19 for the prevention of COVID-19 for the prevention of COVID-19, which it distinguishes between prevention treatment uh, as separately says you could be a treatment could be diagnostic, but what we're looking for is for prevention. Um, And so, and it said Pfizer, you're only going to be immune under the prep act if you comply with these provisions too. Uh, So that, that was what the contract provided. said, look, do we, we look at the very essence of the bargain? Do we have any doubt that the government would not have entered into this contract, would not have written the check, had they known the drug was not safe, not effective, not a vaccine, and didn't prevent COVID-19. Does anybody have any doubts that that was material? We all know it was material because it goes to the very essence of the bargain. And that's what Justice Thomas told us to look
1: at. And it was two billion dollars, correct? Uh, under the oh contract yeah, I mean, the-
2: I mean, it's been billions more. I mean, the, the billions just keep adding on, and on and on, on, and on. So the, uh, the so, and we emphasize. Otherwise, we think the uh, if the court thinks there's anything inadequate in our complaint, then amendment is the remedy, not dismissal. And if the court has any doubts about ambiguity or materiality as to whether that even can be effectively proven, then discovery, not dismissal, is the answer. So most of the people who watched. Uh, the proceedings came away with the conclusion uh, that we would likely survive the motion to dismiss in some stage. Uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. I know that Pfizer would be shocked uh, to have to experience discovery or a uh, permission of amendment. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, uh, we're right on the facts. We're right on the law. Broke Jackson courageously took this case forward. It is the biggest whistleblower case in American history. It is the biggest uh, public health scandal in American history. Uh, It is arguably the biggest public health scandal uh, in the world, uh, in the history of the world. And so it's, you know, it's mini Chernobyls happening all the time, all around the world, uh, knowingly and deliberately and intentionally by Pfizer. And, you know, my conclusion, it was simple. Pfizer lied, people died, time for discovery.
1: And I'm showing just a portion of the, of the contract here. I just want to talk. Yeah, this is your, well, this is not my highlighting. I think this is your highlighting. Yeah. Therefore, in response to a request by the government, Pfizer is proposing to manufacture at scale and fill finish for, provisions, for provision to the government a state-of-the-art candidate vaccine developed in collaboration with BioNTech and capable of pro- pro- providing protection against SARS-CoV-2 threat and related coronaviruses. Subject to technical, clinical, and regulatory process uh, success. I'm sorry,
2: and, and that and they keep like here's the other thing like throughout the contract, the uh, as I you know I, the judge already knew it, so I didn't have to go in great detail on it. It talks all it, it requires Pfizer to keep producing what you send to the FDA, what you're submitting to the FDA it requires Pfizer to provide clinical data directly to the Defense Department. It provides it requires Pfizer to update them if any risk alert takes place. I can guarantee you, Pfizer didn't uh, tell the Defense Department while Trump was still president. Well, of, of Brooke Jackson's allegations, mm-hmm. uh, I almost guarantee they kept it secrets. One of the reasons why they're so terrified of discovery in this case. And as Warner Mendenhall, my co-counsel made clear, since they're raising the issue of materiality, if we get to discovery, one of the first people we'll want to depose are people like Anthony Fauci and others. Because we'll see who knew what, when, where. Uh, we'll see uh, what was happening. But the reality is the Trump contract was a very good contract. It was written to only pay for a safe, effective vaccine for the prevention of COVID-19 at speed and scale that could be produced domestically in the United States. Pfizer knew they didn't have a safe vaccine. They knew they didn't have an effective vaccine. They knew they didn't even have a vaccine. And so consequently, they should be held liable. They robbed from the American people. As I pointed out to the judge, the government's own vaccine adverse event report system data shows tens of thousands already dead and millions disabled and it may be greatly underestimating what that is by historical vares numbers, uh, because vares historically underestimates deaths and disabilities by a, a tenfold or a hundredfold ratio in prior surveys and studies done, conducted by places like Harvard, by the way. So the uh, so the court understand this is one of the most consequential, the most consequential, in my view, uh, public health and whistleblower case in American history. And this is about the role and the right of the judiciary uh, to supervise such cases when brought by whistleblowers. And that the executive branch doesn't get to hide behind conflict of interested personnel in order to get away with this fraud. And so we'll see what the uh, judge ultimately determines and decides. But credit to everybody. Warner Mendenhall made great arguments. Alexis Anderson explained why Brooke Jackson was, in fact, uh, discharged in a retaliatory way for retaliatory purposes. The timing sums it all up. The judge kept making the point that here's you guys are saying these claims aren't plausible, but usually that's when you don't detail facts and have conclusory legal conclusions. There's a lot of facts alleged here, as the judge made clear. So uh, Brooke Jackson, and credit to Brooke Jackson, who's continued. You people can find her at Iambrookjackson.com. Also, I am Brooke Jackson on Twitter uh her, our, the iambrookjackson.com has her whole story uh you can see it for yourself see your history for uh yourself the details of her allegations and accusations for yourself and again if you want to read the contract for yourself you can go to viva dot where i have put up a highlighted version there uh
1: it's brooke without an e let me just see if i can get that's this. correct so hold on i screwed something up here i am brooke jackson I'll find it afterwards, Robert. Um, for the time being, let me just bring this up. There's a there's a number of chats that I, I want to bring up because some are on point. Uphill Rider says, "Now that millions have taken the vaccine, does that count as mass scale clinical trial?" Yeah, but it doesn't make it doesn't mean that it's safe after that clinical Obama trial. Obama
2: called it a clinical trial, but that still wouldn't comply with clinical <laughs> trial standards.
1: Wolfgang Second says, "A great informative show. Thank you, Viva and Robert." Uphill Rider is part of the remedy you seek for Pfizer and FDA to admit. All of this in public and encouraging young people to stop taking the vaccine. What, what is oh, the revenue you're looking I mean, for? I mean,
2: the, the, if this, in, this is the only case that right now can keep uh, Pfizer from continuing to do harm and can hold Pfizer accountable. This is it. This is the only case right now in the world that can do so.
1: Beta 1987, 1989 says, you give me hope, Robert. I am keeping my fingers crossed. cupo Sooth says, when did the FDA approve vaccine? When did the FDA approve December vaccine? December of
2: 2020. Uh, by the AMA? way, they had originally agreed in the contract to deliver this by October 31st. So they screwed Trump over twice. First, they denied Trump the political benefit of him having a vaccine that he could talk about prior to Election Day. And then what they delivered wasn't even a vaccine.
1: Kitty 724 says, so glad you mentioned the constant gardener was my first thought when our emergency use forcing of this vaccine. Gur, thanks for all you both do to bring truth into the light. I have to read that book now. Ukraine has barred all opposition parties and independent media. Ukraine is streaks ahead of Trudeau's as a tyrannical fascist regime. Is the war a distraction? Kenzie 67 says Ukraine has already uh, instituted digital ID vax passes using Dia app. They have also a war app for the public. It is bad. What do people think of UA spending money while be, while begging for war money? Rama 77, $20 romorant says lockdown files leaked WhatsApp messages. Yeah, I read this from UK Minister Matt Hancock discussing inventing variants to scare Britain into, into lockdowns. Hancock also wants immunity for sending sick elderly care into home. I'll get to that one in a second. Vita. you need to bone up on 15-minute cities. It's as bad as you can imagine. It's as bad as you can imagine, but worse. It's why Chris Sky wants to be mayor. Chris Sky might be coming on sooner than later, people. There are 10 cities in Alberta alone that are signed up. Um, Okay, but spot on the 15-minute city conference was derived from humans, and this is from Jane Catherine Barry. Um, uh, What... We do this without guide. government guide. Kenzie 67, Bill Gates and China have control via who? WHO. The treaty is enforceable via international law, sanctions, fines, etc. Yeah, and so Robert, that's still not the case. And Robert, how is it they can be part of the Paris Accord, which is in effect a treaty?
2: Because we never were. That's why it was never enforced. Uh, it was never passed by the Senate. That's why Trump could just say... I officially declare we're out of it,
1: and that's why the the, the Western participation was voluntary was voluntary, and China's lack of participation was non-sanctionable. Robert, okay,
2: that should answer that. There's this video going around that mistakenly uh, suggests, and there's some articles and ideas out there that there were no clinical trials, that no clinical trials were required, that no clinical uh, that that in fact this was a bioweapon designed by the government. Uh, There's somebody saying that the Pfizer's defense is that the government ordered the fraud and that Pfizer said that in court. Pfizer never said that in court. That's not the case. The, and the, you can read the contract for themselves. Uh, this was not a Defense Department bioweapon. Uh, the, they were absolutely required to comply with FDA rules. That's why it's all over a relatively short contract. That's why there's so many references in one way, shape, or form to safety, or efficacy, or immunization capacity, uh, to FDA approval and authorization, to FDA compliance, to FDA rules, FDA restrictions, and clinical trials. Not there by accident, not there by coincidence, not there by chance. So I, right at the beginning, it says Pfizer will meet those requirements. So people, uh, that's a completely fake. Uh, interpretation, a completely wrong interpretation that people have seen circulated out there. It's intended to immunize Pfizer, and it's as big a lie as the one Pfizer told the taxpayers in the first place
1: to get all that money. Robert, do we do, um, well, I think next on the list is Murdoch. Murdoch, heard it. So, okay, I'm not taking flack. It's just that there's people who watch this day in and day out, and they know every little detail, and they obviously think their opinions are the right opinions. I, I watched the Netflix uh, the Netflix three part series, not the H, HBO one, after the trial. And watching it after the trial, and I, I filed the I followed the trial, but by no means daily like like a lot of people. But I think I think I got the gist of it. Um, I look, I think Murdaugh is guilty, uh, and, and in as much as I think OJ Simpson is guilty despite the acquittal, but I do appreciate all of the arguments for why his conviction, um, you know, might have been rendered. Uh, notwithstanding it was not beyond a reasonable doubt the, the arguments against the the legitimacy of the conviction i mean there's a there's a few big ones uh you know long they they lied when they submitted to the grand jury about some of the evidence that they did or did not have as relates to the bloody shirt um there's no direct forensic evidence or i should say there's no forensic evidence there's no uh there's no weapon there's only ballistics in as much as they're reliable as to the nature of the shots that they reflect uh firearms that are owned or were owned by the Mur- uh, by the murdochs um and then you know th- those are the those are pretty damn strong arguments to say there's reasonable doubt to avoid a conviction the flip side is you have a, an accused who lied about the most essential element of his otherwise you know airtight alibi as having fallen asleep and not been at the scene of the murder Within moments of the murder, there's also the argument that they don't know exactly what the time of death was. They just have a window because of when the cell phones went dead and when he discovered the bodies. He lied about not being at the scene of the murder within proximity to the murder. This is a guy who uh, has systematically lied in all respects. The day of the murders is confronted by his partners at the law firm as to having embezzled, stolen, defrauded $9 million from the law firm. Is a, a you know, his one of his kids, uh killed uh, you know a Mallory Beach in a, in a boating accident the other kid is you know suspected to potentially have been involved in the beating death of a, of a of a uh, potentially his lover in 2015 the wife allegedly might have pushed the the babysitter down the the housekeeper down the stairs and killed her i was like hi hey, okay the, the, you might say there's room for a reasonable doubt all things considered i mean geez, the, if this guy's not the murderer well somebody's going to get off scot free luckily but What's, what's your take on the entire thing? I mean, I think I know, but what's your take?
2: So, I mean, on the, uh, I'm not surprised by the jury verdict. Uh, my view was, and my view generally is that jurors make up their mind before they sit down. They don't mm-hmm. often realize that, but, you know, having done lots of not only jury trials, but mock juries, which really allow you to explore this, uh, to explore what biases they may have beforehand and, and then before they hear the facts and so forth, you see this in live time. Given how short they deliberated,
1: Three, three uh, hours, no questions yeah. for the judge.
2: And basically they admitted that they had made their decision within like 45 minutes um, from at least what some jurors have said afterwards. Quite frankly, that's not a jury that did their job. <laughs> so the uh, when you have a double murder trial where someone's life is on the line in terms of the defendant and uh, you have you know weeks and weeks of trial testimony, uh, when you rush to a verdict, you didn't do your job. So uh, every one of those jurors should be embarrassed. They should be ashamed. They should be humiliated. Uh, because you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't uphold your oath. You violated your oath uh, to those jurors. I say this even in cases where I think somebody's guilty, because if you do your job, you should take days uh, to go. And you, what you should, here's like, I had a great conscientious jury in a case where they convicted my client. Uh, and But what, it took them longer to deliberate than the trial took. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the foreman who I picked because he said he admitted his bias up front, which was amazing, and he ended up being the most deliberative guy, he wouldn't let them vote. Until so he says we're going to go through what are the instructions first, second, we're going to look at all the evidence and how it fits those instructions. We're going to have a robust discussion to make sure we're reviewing this like the movie Twelve Angry Men style, and then we'll vote. and And that was that's a that's a conscientious jury that takes its oath seriously. This jury did not, uh, in my opinion, based on what we've heard so far.
1: I'll just say I want to say one thing. Too. I saw Rockstar in there. It says Vives, you believe woke Netflix BS? No. I'm just watching it in retrospect now. There's stuff in there that we all agree upon as fact. And you know, everybody's saying, like, you get bias from this. this I, the Netflix documentary ra- did the best argument possible to raise the idea that it would have been one of the angry, disgruntled teenagers from the boating accident. So, yep. The Netflix didn't really point to Murdoch as, as guilty. I just have my own biases, which is when the guy lies about having been at the scene of the crime within very close proximity to it, Given every, given what else happened that day, given the fact that he lied about pretty much everything, it, it, it becomes, I know it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, it becomes, you know, very reasonable that this guy, given opioid addiction, could have been out of his body when he did this. Um, you know, the, I mean,
2: it, my, yeah, my view is that uh, on that, going to that issue, if I had been on the jury, I would have voted not guilty because I didn't see evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. In particular, I was focused on forensic evidence, like, where are the weapons? Where is the, gun where the residue? Weapons? Where is the blood that should have been on him? Where Where is forensic evidence connecting him to the murders? Um, and and everybody that was attacking him for the most part was focused on him. And what I said very early on is that he's a criminal. He's clearly a criminal narcissist. It's uh, where I agreed with the body language panel, behavior panel, that he was lying in the interview to the police. But I had a different interpretation of its meaning. I don't think it was because he committed the murders. I think it's because he's a criminal narcissist and his first reaction is not to have a natural human, emotional reaction. His first reaction is how do I make sure the world doesn't know who I am and doesn't catch me for being an, a unemotional narcissist. Uh, who's a drug abuser and criminal and thief on a regular basis. Who's living a fake life and has my whole life. Uh, like a lot of Southern prosecutors just saying this guy came from a long family of Southern prosecutors. Well, maybe a coincidence, maybe not, but the, so I, I, I have, uh, and we highlighted from the get-go the one piece of evidence that was the worst piece of evidence for him was him being heard on tape within minutes of when the government alleges the murders occurred. Mm-hmm. And so I thought him taking, as you pointed out, him taking the stand and admitting he lied was very damning. And I thought, and jurors have now confirmed that as well. A, clearly a tactical mistake in letting him testify. Now, maybe he overrode his defense lawyer's objections because criminal narcissists often think they can fool anybody anytime. But you can have a criminal— na- As OJ Simpson pointed out, he could be a criminal liar and not necessarily a murderer. (laughs) OJ might know a little something about that.
1: Well, and, or OJ, my OJ chiming in is the exact thing that a a successful murderous narcissist might do. Here's my advice. It's
2: classic. Um, Now, to the the, third question Are there appeal, are there appeal grounds? Tons. The only question is whether courts, I mean, basically, this judge allowed everything in and most legal commentators watching it and observing it including Nick Recada, good logic and others, uh Andrew Bronca, legal vices to be distinguished from legal bites, legal bites bad, legal vices good. Just saying, the uh is that uh is that this should not have come in. This was all hey this guy's a bad guy, please convict him. The even the jury said that the motive that motive evidence didn't wasn't very persuasive to them. They just Focused on what you focused on, he lied about when he, when he was there. We're well, going to uh, we're going to say that means likely guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Also, it points out something I pointed out. You're hearing almost none of these jurors talk of, in terms of beyond reasonable doubt. If they think he did it, they're going to convict, that, even if it was by a preponderance of the
1: evidence. I, and that's look. And people might get angry with me in the chat. I'm I'm acknowledging that I I think he's guilty, but I you know whether or not they proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I understand the arguments. And especially you know three hours of deliberation. This is not a. Um, What's the other guy who who ran the car into the people in, in Waukesha?
2: Oh, Waukesha, yeah. Uh,
1: this is not like a Waukesha type thing where, yeah, yeah, you because there, the, and... there was
2: nothing. Of him to, had, it was un, it was undisputed that he did it. Basically,
1: that's that. So here I can understand. There's no direct evidence, although people might you know still de- debate forensic evidence. Well, there's
2: expert evidence that said the forensic evidence is inconsistent with him committing the murder based on the trajectory of the yeah, shots, the location of I, that, and so. The I mean the fact that the government didn't have the prosecution didn't have their own trajectory expert tells me that that trajectory expert is true uh, because if you're the government one of the things you want to do is put together how he did it but didn't you they, want to ex- they never uh, did really they never really cross, explained that
1: did they, on cross did they not explain that it, he could have just been kneeling down when he shot so like you know th- th- this even
2: that it was almost it, it was it was it would be the weirdest way possible. Uh, and even then it would be difficult and it was still inconsistent with aspects of the forensic evidence. And so the, uh, and again, that's my point. It, the government had prosecution to plunge it. They do this all the time. They, they put their own expert people. They're usually the ones putting one on that explain the trajectory evidence. They didn't. That was a huge red flag that their own people were like, actually, we can't produce competent expert testimony that's consistent with the trajectory evidence. So I think they convicted a criminal, who wasn't guilty of this murder and whoever did it probably having some beers in South Carolina tonight.
1: Um, All right. Or maybe
2: some margaritos in Mexico. There were, there were,
1: there, there were other, yeah, there's other players. uh, I think one or the other, there's other players involved in all of this. Uh, All right.
2: uh, We'll cover juicy small a next week. uh, Save the double jeopardy case. Another, but another big murder case. A lot of people asked us to talk about was the George Allen Kelly, the border rancher. Okay, see, I, I'm
1: I'm not up to date on this, Robert.
2: So what happened is, so uh, this is his story. So the he was initially charged with first-degree murder. The Mexican government is demanding he be charged with first-degree murder. The judge only held him over for second-degree murder and aggravated assault because the evidence was so weak at the hearing. So he's a rancher along the Mexican border. He says... Uh, he's had a history of problems of people crossing his land, but not just people crossing his land, which is the way the media portrayed the story. It's like, oh, okay, illegal immigrant crosses his, his land, so he just goes out and starts shooting him. That's not what that's not what the evidence appears to be. What the evidence appears to show is that he has had a history of drug dealers and armed people and robbers and assaulters coming on his land, and he hears a gunshot from inside the house. He's an o- older gentleman. And so he goes out and he sees people that appear to be carrying guns and in camo with with camouflage bags and the rest crossing within a couple of hundred yards of his in in his own property. Mm -hmm. So he says he fired up in the air and then immediately contacted Border Patrol. Border Patrol came out. They found nobody. Nobody. Many hours later, he's out and his dog is sniffing around something and he finds further out a dead body he calls in uh by the way if he did this deliberately would he call in or would he just bury the person in the backyard just food for thought out there he immediately calls in the border patrol says i found a dead body out here uh they decide that he must have shot them uh shot them in the back they apparently because some of these people were testifying somehow illegals were testifying in court when supposedly they went back to Mexico. So have they been given a sweetheart deal that they get citizenship to fabricate testimony potentially against somebody? What's the prosecutors up to down there? I'm just curious. Cause that seemed a little anomalous to me. The, uh, and what, and he, he, he thought someone else killed the person. Cause he's like, I just fired up in the air. This shouldn't have killed this person. Um, and the, uh, so what the, he has a robust self-defense. He has an argument that he, there, he's now being charged with reckless homicide and aggravated assault. But he says, I didn't shoot at anybody. That wasn't trying to cause any harm to anybody. I was just trying to scare people off. And to my knowledge, didn't shoot anybody. And the fact the border agents came and didn't find anybody is
1: confirmation. I wasn't the one who shot them. There should be two very easy questions to answer here. I don't know how far along the evidentiary process they are. But on the one end, bullets should be there. And trajectory should also be there. Like, why wouldn't that be determinant in and well, of apparently, itself?
2: Apparently, they didn't have a lot of that evidence so far. Instead, their main evidence was... Uh, It it was some of the other illegals that claim, emphasis claim, they were with him at the time, the person who was shot, and that they saw an old man from the backyard pull something and fire at them and and shot him in the back. And it's like, I was curious, like, how do they know this person was even there? Right? I mean, why is this person here in the U.S. now? They said they went back over the Mexican border when they saw the shooting take place. This all smells real bad. And, you know, they and, and they acted like they, they admitted they paid somebody to come across, but they don't explain uh, in detail as far as I could tell who that was. So what you have is I mean, to give some idea of the aggressivity in places like Southwest Texas, a friend of mine was telling this story. Illegals will actually break into military bases and break in and try to steal guns and weapons and other things. And why is that? It's because a lot of these groups are not your ordinary looking for farm work like this guy's story was. I'm doubtful of that story. These people, or maybe he was forced to do so. You can't rule that out either. Everything about this screams drug cartels making a drug run of some sort, not not just an illegal immigration run. Now, in Arizona, his self-defense rights is if he, uh, you know, they have a strong castle law, strong protection of your home, strong self-defense laws. You can use deadly force if you fear that you, you have reasonably fear uh, and often it's a presumed reasonable fear under certain circumstances. Uh, Andrew Bronca, law of self-defense. I'm sure will do a very good breakdown on this because this is here his, his area of expertise, um, and do a deeper dive on it. Uh, so I recommend people look to him for that. The uh, also, if you just like politically incorrect jokes, the man's a master of it. And I was going to say,
1: uh, Bronca obviously vehemently uh, does not agree with my very, uh, I'll say, a prejudiced opinion against the Murdoch. So. We were we were having a minor back and forth on Twitter, but I, I defer to his expertise. I just know what you know. Oh, what especially I think. the
2: law of self defense. I mean, yeah. how you yeah. interpret the evidence is kind of a different matter. But the law of self defense, uh, v- very robust. And mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily recommend it for relationship advice, depending on your circumstances. <laughs> but the uh, uh, he he has more of an old school approach, shall we say? Causes a little controversy now and then. But he is one of the funniest human beings on the planet, uh, and one of the quickest witted people. But he's he's fantastic uh, in the area of law of self defense. And but my understanding of Arizona self defense law is that if he reasonably feared either aggravated assault or aggravated burglary, which he claims he did, then he would have justification to use deadly force anyway. And of course, he's claiming he wasn't even using deadly force, uh, nor did he think he was reckless in how he was firing because he didn't believe it impacted anyone. And he's got the argument that he didn't cause this death, that because again. They came, they searched, they found nobody. What, what's more sensible is that somebody else, you know, that was somebody who got wall. It is not uncommon at all. They don't pay the the fee. If they were AWOL for any other reason, that he was summarily executed by drug dealers and and, and they just stuck the body on that rancher's backyard because they were ticked about him shooting in their direction before.
1: But I, I, I think it I don't understand how you you don't have the bullets that match the gun that the guy presumably has. He didn't dispose of his gun, and that if it was shot, oh, and up and in they the air... found
2: it. They found AK forty seven, but according to him, what he saw that day was people carrying AK 47s mm-hmm. So it's not clear if that that match will be enough uh, uh, to to prove that he had, it was his bullet that caused it. And then there's question of intentionality, and then there's question of self defense. But it looks to me like uh, more liberal prosecutors. Trying to strip people of their self-defense rights when they're constantly facing
1: criminality from the massive invasion of criminals along the border. This is this is like um, mutatis mutandis the prosecutions of the McCloskeys for having riots and protests in front of your house, and then the second you even ostensibly defend your house or your property, you get persecuted and prosecuted. So they make an example out of you for defending your property from. The consequences of uh, the uh, lawlessness that results from their policy and their tolerance. Um, Okay, that's interesting. Well, to be to be followed.
2: Absolutely. Now the uh, briefcase on this. uh, A elderly, a kidnapped victim family has sued OnStar.
1: So this is it's an interesting case, Rob. But I read it and it makes me angry to read it because it's like customer service. I'm not saying this to be funny now it seems that companies have gotten too big to even deal with standard customer service issues. But this, this has like serious consequences. A woman, an 80-some-odd-year-old woman gets kidnapped from her house and, and driven away by uh, the kidnapper who ultimately killed her in her car. It's like a 2012 Buick equipped with OnStar. The family calls OnStar and says, geolocate the car. You have real time. You, you can track it like ping, bing ping. Where's the car? Let us know. They say, no, we're not letting you do that. They call the car and say, are you all right? And she says, you know, basically not giving proper answers. Um, law enforcement, also, they don't give the information to law enforcement. Apparently, when they had called the elderly lady, um, it triggered the kidnapper guy who was driving her home. U turned. She's found dead. Uh, they're suing, obviously, the, the murderer. And they're suing OnStar for damages because on, on the basis that OnStar's negligence or failure to respond, failure to provide information to law enforcement resulted in the death. Uh, I I presume this is going to get settled out of court before it gets to to judgment because it seems inexcusable that this is not like a you know backdoor entry into an iPhone. This is tell freaking law enforcement where the car is and don't you know tip off the criminal who may have kidnapped an elderly lady because that's what the the, the family was nervous. Uh, what, what do you think? Am I wrong?
2: Yeah, no, no, I mean, I mean, the facts are pretty damning for for OnStar. When I first saw the headline, I was like, "How in the world is OnStar responsible for some other kidnapper?" And then you read the facts, and you're like, mm-hmm. "Holy cow!" I um, mean, the family kept calling, you know, and, and told them what they thought had happened or, or or what they were concerned about, and OnStar basically did everything possibly wrong, and in, in the process, uh, may have caused her death, uh, the in the sense of, or may have prevented. The prevention of her death
1: may have impeded the otherwise uh, uh, successful. I mean, why they just wouldn't give the info to to law enforcement? Uh It's like you have you have someone there who's behind a phone and says um, we're not, we're going to call up and she answered the phone, so she must be fine.
2: Yeah, exactly. Now um, the um uh you know, this is sort of a well uh we'll get more into this case next week the DOJ's uh Trump immunity issues because the court hasn't ruled on it yet uh same with the uh, january 6 defamation case and the school board speech case which is going to be filed next week uh we'll get to those next week but the florida blogger registration legislation Mm -hmm. it's only a proposal so yes somebody has made a nutty proposal that says if you talk about a florida governing official you have to register with the government you'd have to register viva
1: wouldn't it be ironic if in my flight from canada uh, i end up in a country that requires vaccine proof of Proof of vaccination to get into and proof of registration of blogger, which is exactly what, you know, the problem with Bill C-11 might end up being in Canada. Hilarious. Um, One thing we've noticed now, public pressure does have impacts on politics. So raise hell. Yeah. Um, But it's not a good look when stupid laws or stupid proposals come out from a government that you otherwise support. And where you say like, okay, I'm cool with it now because it's DeSantis, but I won't be cool with it if it's Nikki Fried, for example. Um, so, yeah, bad laws are bad, whether or not they're under good tyrants or bad tyrants. Exactly. The
2: uh, We had two big cases about a woke bank and the historic case of the week. And then we'll have five rapid fire cases to wrap up tonight before we go over exclusively to locals to answer locals questions at the end of the show. The uh, the woke bank case is a case of mine as well. It's why I was in Austin, Texas as well. Uh, it was a busy, busy week because we had to prepare for the oral arguments and there you're looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of pleadings and court cases that you're reviewing trying to figure out every possible angle, uh, anticipate every possible question. So that was very consuming and at the same time two major depositions and motion practice in this woke bank case. Here's what happened. It involves US Bank, organized out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it's a local division of it uh called the Community Development Corporation based in St. Louis. My client is Michael Qualiza. He has spent the better part of 20 years uh, rehabbing and refurbing and improving and revitalizing urban cores and inner cities for di- for disproportionately economically distressed and often minority populations. He does so by going in and finding buildings that need major repair that could revitalize the whole community, provide jobs, provide employment, just upgrade the feeling of the community using the old broken windows theory in part to do so. And I mean, he helped do, he did the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, part of a bunch of great hotel projects across the country along these lines, has brought to US Bank over half a billion dollars in deals and transactions, over 50 million dollars in profits. They pitched to him redoing the International Shoe Building in downtown St. Louis, Missouri, and remaking it into what became a, a boutique hotel known as the Last Hotel. Uh, now, the way in which he does all these projects is he incorporates tax credits, federal and state, new market tax credits, historic tax credits, credits meant to help refurb old buildings and to rehab, to rehab and revitalize distressed communities. That's what the last hotel project was all about. But while he's doing the project, he keeps going through one weird thing after another by the bank. The bank tells him it's going to be this great profitable pro- project. They withhold key information about certain risk concerning the project from them throughout. Then he's dealing with a construction company that's patently overbilling that violates the way in which they do contracts in the way they overbill for millions of millions of dollars, sues them to try to get relief for that uh, after they actually sue him first. And the bank interferes and intervenes in the case against him and forces him to write a bogus check. To them, or a check for bo- on bogus grounds to them, and not recover any of the monies. Then later on in the process, they'll do a bunch of other things, including being hyper technical in the contract language to try to default him, to try to charge him excess interest. They'll use the pandemic to try to put him out of business. Even though the pandemic is causing all these problems that everybody else by federal law is given relief from certain loan provisions, U.S. Bank is not. Even though they're putting their own tax credits at risk and their own customers and investors and partners at risk by doing this. And, he, he, and for a while, he couldn't figure out why until uh, Zachary Boyers, the head of the Community Development Corporation unit, uh, basically tells him on the phone that he's been personally targeted. What, what bank is it again, Robert? U.S. Bank. One of the biggest banks in the world, U.S. Bank Corps is a technical name, mm-hmm. Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it's the Community Development Corporation in St. Louis that's running it. You So he retained me. You dig into the file, and what you find is that the lawyer for Community Development Corporation, someone by the name is Stephanie Greasy, uh, talked about what her and Zachary Boyers, the head of the division that controls this, what they had committed to after Michael Brown in Ferguson nearby St. Louis. Create an organization called Forward Through Ferguson, a bunch of other groups where they said their job was to weaponize their position of power, to leverage their position of power, to go after their political adversaries. As they, and they would even, like in some of their speeches, they would capitalize racial equity the, uh, and that they were basically, it's what happens when a bank goes woke. They decided to even sacrifice and risk the bank's own financial interests to personally destroy Michael Qualiza, to make his life a living hell for years. And they did so. This is the danger. And think about it for everybody else out there, why this bank pending in Federal District Court, Eastern District of Missouri and the St. Louis Division. This case has broader ramifications than just Michael Qualiza or the last hotel in St. Louis. This case goes to everybody. If they're willing to go after somebody who has made the bank tens of millions of dollars and brought more than half a billion dollars of business and made their reputation look great because they're rehabbing and revitalizing and refurbishing poor distressed communities, disproportionately benefiting poor and working class African-Americans in particular, what do you think they're going to do to you and me when they decide we're no longer welcome, when we're the kind of folks who give to Canadian truckers? Uh, uh, protesting in the Capitol. The if they can destroy Michael Qualiza, they can destroy anybody. So this case goes to everybody's interest. It's what happens when a bank goes woke. Credit to Michael Qualiza for being willing to stand up to it and try to fight back against it. Uh, but it's scary and terrifying what U.S. Bank did in this case. Uh,
1: I was trying to analogize it to something, but I won't. I forgot what it was. Um, all right, Robert, what what is? Yeah. Historic. Our historic
2: case of the week, the lawyer, unfortunately named Con.
1: Khan.
2: K-H-A-N. Uh, no, C-O-N-N. Uh,
1: okay. Well, I'm worried. sorry. All right. So what is this historic case? Because I uh, i don't so know. It.
2: A, uh, I think it's another Netflix documentary series. So this is the lawyer in Kentucky who became kind of world famous uh, by scamming the social security system. Now, what's interesting is if you dig into the case, two big things are missing from the documentary. So what happened is the Wall Street Journal stumbled on this during the shutdown because a Wall Street Journal reporter was like, why is so why has there been so much increase in Social Security disability payments? And he finds this one judge in West Virginia that presides over that part of eastern Kentucky, Social Security claims, like approved like 99 percent of such claims. Now, anybody that knows Social Security disability, it's actually very hard to get it on average that you lose more often than you win. Uh and the, it's not like the benefits are making you rich. It's like nine hundred bucks a month on average mm-hmm. um but the but so he's like, "I wonder what that is." So he starts investigating, and it turned out there were two court clerks, they're kind of busybody personalities to be honest with you, but the uh, court clerks had been trying to expose the malfeasance in their courtroom with this particular judge. He digs further and he discovers that almost all the cases are this lawyer in Eastern Kentucky who was kind of a wild lawyer. I mean, he was doing, you know, he was driving like Phantom Rolls Royces around and all that kind of thing, had huge houses. He had porn stars appearing in his videos and commercial advertisements. They were singing folk songs for him. But he became very good at getting people disability benefits very quickly. Now, it did not, in fact, mean that those disability claims were false, but we'll get to that in a second. They dig in, and what had happened is he had effectively created a standardized system for creating falsified petitions. Not because the person was undeserving, but because the judge was requiring the petitions have a certain kind of testimony in them with certain kinds of doctor's evidence, even if it didn't match what the actual individual claimant was requesting. And the judge was signing off fast and rapidly, getting these people's benefits quick. It was making the local lawyer very wealthy and very successful and very prominent, dug in, and they considered it one of the biggest frauds in the history of the federal government. Uh, He became even more famous because when he was supposed to show up for his sentencing hearings uh, after he got a plea deal, he decided to take off, said bye-bye, and went went down to Central America. They caught up with him about seven months later. Uh, Apparently, he had 17 wives, something like that. I mean, the guy was setting a real record. Uh, So there's all these wild parts of the story and all the rest. But the real interesting part to me was that when they dug into the scam, he wasn't the one who set up the scam. The judge was the one who set up the scam. The judge had a daughter get into trouble when she was running for judicial office, no less, uh, get caught with drugs and other things. He needed some quick cash. He went and kind of twisted the arm of this social security lawyer because he had a lot of power over him and said, you need to get me some extra cash. You're going to hire my cousin here to paint your house for like 40 grand because I got to get extra fees to the defense lawyer to make sure this thing goes away with my daughter. And then he got a little taste of it, and he was an alky to boot. And he's like, you know what? Here's what you're going to do henceforth. And you're going to get lots of money. You'll be real prominent, but you really need to do this. And he set up the scam. The judge was running the scam from top top to bottom, left to right. He was also, because he was so quick and efficient at getting cases done, the local office was winning awards for the federal government, getting little plaques. And so when the whistleblowers inside the operation – uh, like I said, kind of busybodies, but honest whistleblowers too. We're ratting out what was happening with the judge. Everybody else was enraged. They're like, you're, you're going to take away our you're, awards. You're,
1: you're rooting this for all of us. It's, yes, it's how can you do
2: this? Think about this. How government, it's a perfect case to expose how government bureaucracies actually work, how easy judicial corruption can happen, but also how, how bad bureaucracies are. Their incentives are so distorted. And so, all they care about is a little plaque in their promotion, their extra vacation time, and seniority. It's,
1: rubber, it's ego, Robert. I'm 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 just finishing Russell Brand's uh audiobook on recovery. Ironically enough, I'm having a little snifter of gin, but um, it's addiction to, uh, like it's addiction to success. It's addiction to all of these trivial things of life that. They're like, oh, in our, in our small ecosystem, this is what's important to us, and we want to maximize it. And how dare you blow it for all the rest of us, even though what good is all the wealth of the world for he who has sold his soul? But,
2: and when they finally get outed, who do you think the Social Security Administration takes it out on?
1: I'm going to go ahead and say the unfortunate people on Social Security.
2: That's right. They suddenly and summarily deny all of their benefits. uh putting these people who had you know nothing to live on uh completely out on the street a bunch of pro bono lawyers fought back then when the full assessment was done most of the people that got benefits actually always deserved them the only reason why it was done in this wacky corrupt way was because the judge was the one requiring it for a certain standardized testing not because these people actually didn't qualify that in fact there wasn't really much fraud at the end of the day um but that's classic i mean in between, they, they harassed the whistleblowers. The chief judge of the district actually had a, a private investigator had all these weird, you know, questionable connections, almost like Dixie Mafia kind of connections, spy on and then lie about the whistleblowers. You know, like, I mean, tried to do, you know, all these crazy things. But the, the most brutal retaliation was of the ordinary people because the big thing that's missed in the whole documentary is that since the 1990s, uh, uh, more and more working class people are dropping out of the economy entirely. I realized this in Southeast Tennessee and North Georgia when about 10 years ago, all of a sudden lawyers used to do personal injury work. We're doing social security disability work. I was mm-hmm. like, what the heck is happening? And the problem is they're not just dropping out of the economy. They hit about 40, 45 and they're dropping out of society. They're not raising kids. They're not staying in families. They're not taking care of elders. They're I mean, not going to church. They're not what? going to community. They, they just have quit on life. And where it shows up is places where we've taken away pride and work, where we've taken away manufacturing, where we've taken away mining, where we've taken away the ability, particularly of working class men to support a family. They've just quit on themselves and quit on life. And they get disability, criminality, do drugs. Okay. And that's the, that's the part that they're missing from the whole picture. That the real reason there's been a massive growth in so scary disability is the politicians in Washington have betrayed working class communities in our manufacturing and mining communities in this country.
1: Robert, instead, if you entertain me, instead of the rapid fire, can I just go through some of the uh, the tips that we've had in our Locals community? Oh, sure, yeah. We've, we have oh, we have some
2: big tips. We have some I big will, tippers.
1: Well, we got 102. I'm going to share the screen because it might be easier. We've got 800-plus people watching in Locals, which is amazing. That's just. Okay, so here. just so hey, that everybody For those can, out there, you
2: can watch live now on Locals as well as Rumble at vivabarneslaw.locals.com.
1: I, I only changed my name to the abbreviated Viva Fry so everyone could see the Viva Barnes shirt. Let me see if I if I do this here, Robert. Here we go. We got eight hundred and fifteen people watching, which is beautiful. Uh, and I'll read these one by one. S Laird sent a one dollar tip. It said your Jimmy Door appearance was lit was lit. Viva watched his clips yesterday and said yeah, it, it was fun. I swore a couple of times. Uh, Ms. Dunn twenty eleven says thank you Viva and Barnes for sharing Blue's story. Robert is right. You're a genuinely nice Canadian man. I have my moments, but it's only about irritability, frustration, and black pill. Uh, I'll be in Vegas for March. Th- th- so that was from S- uh, MS Dunn 2011. Swiss Chi, $5, says, I'll be in Vegas for March Madness wearing my Duran cap. Gantit, a $4 tip says, Are you going to cover Florida blog or build a stream? Done and done. Sateshi Ape. Speaking of car accident, didn't Kemp's daughter, Kemp's daughter boyfriend, have one in 2020? I don't know what that. I don't know about that. Robert, do you know about that? I do not. Alex P. One One Three Seven Five. I can I can make a pattern with these numbers in in like five seconds. Viva Barnes is Vivia Barnes is Viva Barnes. Tony, uh, no, I mean he meant Viva Barnes. In what district did Flynn file his suit? Hopefully, yeah. In what district? Uh, The Middle District
2: of Florida, Tampa Division.
1: So that's a better district. Hopefully they don't just move to, you know, get to D.C., the swamp. Mighty Pets says, Robert, please consider keeping the chat open later like you used to. It's an easier, better way to communicate with others in ways that can't be done via board posts. And it's a good way to build community in this form. What I'm going to see if I can do, I'm going to see if I can just keep the live stream going, but just remove everybody from the video so everybody can continue chatting. We'll see about that. Satoshi Ape, $2. Robert should be SCOTUS for once, pure constitutionals. I would pay money to see that, Robert. We Sangle or Wes Angle, $1. Robert Barnes, wouldn't parts of the same argument you make about sovereign immunity be applicable to eminent domain? Yeah, in part.
2: I mean, I mean just compensation was supposed to take care of that, but it is it, it, it's inconsistently applied, in my view.
1: We got John 80's music. With the F bar decision, can people who were screwed over sue to get their money back? Robert. Uh, they make
2: it tough to get refunds.
1: No refunds. It's like Bernie Sanders. There will be no refunds. Thank you for supporting the government. Um, John 80s music said, did my direct message go through locals get through to you guys? I don't know. I'll have to check for that. Can you give us a link to the European article, please? Uh, Which one is that? Pam Walker. Let me let me screen grab that and see if I remember what that is afterwards. Grumpy old jock. Four dollar tip says Australia has a constitution that was supposed to protect us. This sounds like Canada. Unfortunately, Australian government is corrupt. Australian courts are corrupt. Our dear leader is asking for carte blanche to rewrite the constitution. Also, our dear leader, vaccine passport, yes. Digital ID, yes. 15-minute cities, check. Blow up coal power stations and ban gas production and exploration. We are all we are well underway to owning nothing and being happy. Sounds like Canada, man. All right, better on a camel. <laughs> Can Pfizer, I'm trying to figure out what that name means, can Pfizer be sued for reckless manufacturing processes that don't produce consistent batches of the vaccines? Robert.
2: We're looking at that and looking at whether or not uh, Anthony Fauci can also
1: be sued, given the confirmation of what we talked about earlier. Oh, that would be good. Not, I don't wish ill on anybody, but I would love for Anthony Fauci to be sued and found guilty after a fair trial. <laughs> okay, Swiss Cheese says, uh, you're my hero, Robert Barnes. Sophia Agape says, Thank you, Barnes. Sophia Agape says, my last coins. $4 tip. Thank you. It's 10 cents a coin. If everybody wants to know. I know Barnes. Uh, so this is from Ginger Ninja. I know Barnes, rightly so, is a skeptic when it comes to politics affecting the judiciary. But Paul Barnes saying he believes this motion will be decided in good faith. Question mark, exclamation point. Question mark. I may just have a sliver of hope. Am I losing my black pill? Come from black pill viva? Yes, you are. And you might take the black pill as an enema when it gets dismissed and Barnes gets sanctioned for <laughs> for his conduct. I'm joking, Robert. I'm sorry. Uh, Mighty Pay, how can banks be stopped for refusing people's business or sabotaging them because of woke BS or political persecution? Robert, th- that is the question that we're basically asking in Canada. We're like, how can the banks be punished for debanking people, Jeremy McKenzie in particular? Hey, in Canada, nobody gives a shit, regardless, which is the bigger problem. I, I, someone I mean... Who-
2: It violates various federal law, violates various state law. So it because U.S. Bank had to be a legally had to be a partner in these transactions with Mr. Quiliza. So because in order to in order for their investors and partners and customers to get the tax credits uh, by law, they had to be an investor. And that meant they had the do fiduciary obligations associated there with. So there's breaches of duty of good faith, breaches of duty of fair dealing, uh, not just breaches of contract. On top of what's called a prima facie tort in Missouri, where no other tort covers the conduct. It means if your lawful conduct was for an unlawful purpose, you could hold them accountable. So a prima facie tort has been brought. Negligent and fraudulent misrepresentation has been brought because they withheld key information from them all the way through the process to try to bankrupt them as part of this political personal vendetta campaign. Uh, so there are ways to get remedy under U.S. law when the banks go AWOL. Uh, but it, it's we got to be alert to more of it. And the bank's got to be held more accountable to it, because otherwise this will accelerate and escalate fast and badly.
1: Robert, let, look, very rarely do things actually happen in real time. I just got a new notification from Chris Pavlovsky. Let me bring this up in incognito so I don't accidentally show who I've been DMing <laughs> like a flipping idiot that I am. I have no nothing embarrassing in my DMs. I just don't want the world necessarily knowing who I have been DMing because they might want confidentiality. Uh, uh, Is it this one or is it this one? No, it's this one right here. Check this out, Robert. What do we say? Here's an idea. Rumble takes zero from creators for in-app tipping and we challenge big tech in the courts for antitrust. We've had some nice legal wins and it doesn't hurt to add more to the name of helping creators. Vote below. People. Of the 21, 20,000 people still watching right now, go check it out and vote on it, Robert. Okay, so hold on. Let's put this here before my wife kills me because now it's like it's. I hear I hear stomping upstairs, and it's not the happy had the not the happy stomps. Wednesday, sidebar. Who do we have? Oh, uh, I just emailed it over yeah, to you. Son uh, of a beast!ing Hold on, I didn't mean the. To, uh, don't nope, don't worry. Don't, hold, 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 I, I'm an idiot. I could. I should just done this. But season. we God. we
2: have somebody uh, for this week. We also have uh, I think Garland Nixon uh, for next week, and then uh, we have Edward Dowd a couple of weeks after
1: that. Um, for some reason, I'm blanking on on who we have this. Links. Week. For, uh, no, that's links. For, hold on. I'm getting my email. My goodness. Okay. Let me refer. Ah, anyways, uh, we have. We,
2: but but we we have a good guest. I know that part.
1: Yeah. It's just I, mean, well, I, I got. The oh, oh I know.
2: I know. I know. It's the uh, Department of Justice. A uh, lawyer who was exposing election fraud and doing a lot of great work during the Trump administration has been a constant, continuous target since then. Was a target while he was at the Justice Department. He was one of the few people trying to get into what happened in the election. Uh, Jeffrey Clark,
1: son of a gun. I see. I, my emails have just. I can't find emails anymore. So we got a sidebar Wednesday night. Uh, tomorrow I might be doing my first jujitsu mixed martial arts. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We'll see about that. I might have to document it. And
2: we still have time for the five rapid fire. Do it,
1: do it, do it. Let's go for it. Here. So the
2: Tennessee has passed a law limiting the ability of drag shows to appear in public places where children can be present. I think the law will be held up as constitutional because that's always been something. Protection of children in public places has been reasons to limit certain
1: sexually explicit conduct. Robert, let me me stop you there. (sighs) Drag has been around for a hundred years. Why is it uh, why are people now all of a sudden obsessing with presenting it to children? The history of drag is that it used to be in American speakeasies. It used to be look if not it was adult entertainment. If that doesn't mean sexual by nature, it still means adult entertainment linked to the gay community. Nobody cares about that. Nobody would give a sweet bugger all about drag shows if they were geographically limited to age appropriate crowds and locations. Without getting blackpilled, Robert, because I can only get blackpilled on this, what the hell is the infatuation with rubbing drag shows in the faces of children? And why do drag queens and kings want children as their audience? It's a question that
2: answers itself. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so the uh, 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 Separately, there was a dismissal in, I believe, state court of people who sued the school system over the Oxford school shooting on sovereign immunity grounds, of course, and governmental immunity grounds. Uh, my understanding is that's not the federal civil rights one that's been dismissed. The state one and then that one will go up the Michigan Court of Appeals as to whether it's constitutional. That scope of immunity will be a track. It'll be a case worthy of tracking. Uh, fun little California surfer fight that it turned out this small beach town in California allowed basically a surfer game.
1: It, it, I read that. I read that, Robert. It was like it was like um, point break. In reality, the Bay Boys, they, they, they had such a beautiful surf spot, they didn't want anybody else in it. And the city allowed this a gang, basically, to erect a structure that basically limited anybody who could access this wonderful surfing spot to locals. Uh, apparently, like, the city and others were involved in ticketing cars, towing cars of, of outsiders who came in, physical, verbal harassment, assault, uh, intimidation to prevent people from getting there. They sued under some law that I have no idea what the law is, Robert. But It's, it's pr- about protecting, coastal, yeah, yeah, protecting coastal the access coast.
2: in California. And the question was, does that only apply to development in the real estate sense? Or does that apply to simply access? And the California Court of Appeals said, no, the meaning of development is access in a broader sense. That was the point and purpose of the law was to make sure the public had the right to access the coast. Uh, it's the reason why Malibu is always trying to keep people away. Uh, you have a right to a certain part of. There's a certain public right to a beach. You, you can go behind, you know, uh, David Geffen's house and smile at him and sit there in the beach and read a little book as long as you're on the public access side. They're always scamming and scheming to try to prevent it in Malibu. I lived there for a long time, witnessed it firsthand. The uh, but it was an interesting little case, and then two other uh, cases just popped up today. Jordan Peterson expressed concern about deep fakes. Uh, it's always kind of at times he's funny what he gets irritable about like sometimes the irritation is very understandable and then sometimes it's a little grandfatherly like
1: well it, jordan jordan for all of his um positives he he's not that he's sensitive but he's a big target and he's like the number one there's going to be there's going to be deep fakes of jordan peterson saying bad stuff and then people are going to believe it and it will lead people to believe bad things about jordan peterson and i totally understand it and especially since he's got such a distinctive voice and a distinctive delivery if a deep fake can deliver it in a believable manner he's not safe but above all else nobody's safe um so robert it, yeah what
2: and as long now to the degree that it would be a parody it would be completely protected of course so there's a bunch of these deep fake parodies out there that's completely protected to the degree it's not parody however uh, then it would be liable, and Jordan Peterson would, in fact, have a claim over those circulating.
1: Against whom, though? The programmers of the a of the of the of the well, it's the it just
2: like defamation. Anybody who shared it would actually who who vouched for it, who made it their own statement, mm-hmm. uh, would in fact also be liable and responsible for it. So that unless they make clear that it's parody, and then the uh, last case we had, Michael Knowles appears to have been libeled by Rolling Stone. So Michael Knowles uh, gave a speech at CPAC a conservative political action committee that meets once a year in Washington, D.C., where Donald Trump gave a big speech as well. And uh, what he laid out was that the ideology of transgenderism is a dangerous ideology that yeah. does harms, including to people who think or identify as transgender, in his opinion. Rolling Stone suggested that he wanted all the transgender people killed. Mm -hmm. so that is classic libel Uh, if Rolling Stone doesn't uh, change it then Michael Knowles has a pretty robust claim for for libel
1: and and I heard it he said trans ideology has to be eradicated and not trans people and he specifically said
2: in order to protect the people who think they are trans that this ideology is hurting them as much as it's hurting anyone else so he clearly did not want any harm to people that identify as trans he wanted he believed he was better protecting them if this ideology
1: was destroyed. I can't imagine what it would feel like to be him right now. I heard what he said, and not just that. Trans ideology is damaging to homosexuals and gays and lesbians because it takes a gay person and it says you're not you're not gay. You have a problem. You're actually a woman. Uh, you're a woman in a man's body, and so being gay is not even a thing for you. You have a deeper problem. And I just go back to my interview with uh, Tulip R. Richie, where they, they're telling gays to go lop your dicks off and then they wake up and they say what the hell did i just do i'm just a gay person and i was led to believe that i was actually a woman in a man's body and i had to def- not defame uh deface mutilate my body to be happy but robert th- th- this is going to be lighthearted to some extent uh the idea of deep fakes becoming like real where people believe them everybody knows pleb the trucker um who who put this thing together from, a, you know, a, a picture that I shared where I had a relatively blank cup and a blank shirt. And, um, you know, people can believe now that I actually posted, uh, I support Pierre Poilievre, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, which I don't. And to make my point, I, re, I re-superimposed Joe Biden on the mug and let's go brand it on the shirt. But these, these deep fakes will get so believable, you will not be able to distinguish reality from fake, And it's going to screw things up. It's going to screw people up. But the bigger risk is that you go on social media, you're going to be seeing deep fakes of people that do not exist, espousing opinions that they don't espouse because they don't exist. But people are going to be led to believe that other people are believing these things. It's going to normalize thought. It's going to normalize certain seditious ideology that people are going to say, well, geez, I just saw a lot of people saying how good it is. And therefore I should believe myself. It's we're nearing like, Post-apocalyptic, like post-post-apocalyptic stuff, Robert.
2: Now, as we wrap up, the uh, cigar of the week is Flor de los Antilos, a uh, a 10th year anniversary cigar. And the book is To Seek a Newer World by one Robert Francis Kennedy. And that relates to our White Pill of the Week. The one, the only Robert Francis Kennedy Jr. has discussed challenging President Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. And there is no better white pill than the idea of the 2024 campaign might come down to Donald Trump or Robert Kennedy, in which people have asked, who's going to win? In that case, who America would be the winner. And <laughs> who would be the big losers? It's basically the deep state nightmare can- candidate election, Robert Kennedy against Donald Trump. So Robert Kennedy is my white pill of the week.
1: Robert I'm blackpilled because I I just had a thought that I don't even want to express uh, aloud. But I think people are going to know exactly what I'm thinking of. the And 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 whenever
2: he's talked about running for office, they've targeted him for harassment and smear campaigns and the rest. But he said his wife is okay with it in New Hampshire. So he's like, "Eh, maybe it's time to uh, uh, bring back the mantle. In my view, he'd be the best Democratic candidate for the presidency since his father. And, and the I'm he sure. has he has, you know, he has made clear he believes the deep state, uh, the CIA, the intelligence community, is behind both the assassination of his father and his uncle. And uh, Donald Trump said at CPAC, he's on a revenge tour. He goes, I'm not it's not my retribution, it's your retribution. And we're gonna destroy the deep state. Imagine if Donald Trump and Robert Kennedy, two of the greatest enemies of the deep state alive, were the nominees of the two major parties in twenty twenty four.
1: I don't like the thoughts that I'm having in my head Robert but yeah um it's the, the CI the, the deep state did kill his father did kill his uncle and uh if he runs for office I mean it's okay uh it yeah, would be he'd amazing he'd
2: be like his father fearless and uh deep deep conscience and uh would make a fantastic candidate so uh I, I look forward to that 2024 is starting to look really
1: bright tabernus robert so we've got a sidebar Wednesday stick around people tomorrow I'll, I'll have stuff all week And there might be some good stuff. Chris Skye, for those who know, might be on the menu. I'll just have to, we'll have to see about that. And uh, Saturday, Robert, I'll see you in Vegas. Sunday, our meet and greet. There are only 50 tickets available, sold out in two minutes. Uh, We're going to start small, make sure it works, and then scale up. Uh, There will be lots of exclusive content on VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com. So head over there. And other than that, Robert, another uh, amazing episode. You stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes. Everyone in the chat, enjoy the week. And what's left of it?